0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, what's got all those Windows admins in a total panic? It's chaos, my friends, and we'll tell you all about it. Extensive coverage of Apple's new file system and ransomware that just might impress you. Plus, we've got your questions, our answers, a packed roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 272 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on June 23rd, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and Diak Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, our live stream. Oh, man, that is powered by the incredible scale engine. Over at ScaleEngine.com, you should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is the man that runs Scale Engine. Well, yes, it's also our host, the tech, the teacher, and the admin, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello there, sir. Hello, Alan. Hello, Chris. Everybody, Thanks Hello. For Hello, Alan. So, uh, as you know, uh, I, I battle with a uh, pest in the studio today during the intro. He was flying around my head, mm-hmm. so I actually got—I actually even got her. There he goes again. There he goes again. I got our episode wrong on my first intro, so I'm here now second time. Second time's the charm, Alan. And I couldn't get the number wrong because we have such a good episode ahead. We had to get the numbering right. So sure, uh, <laughs> sure come on. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. i to. I'm trying to promote all of the hard work. The number you do.
1: makes a difference.
0: <laughs> Here's what I like about today's episode: is last week you said you're going to look into something. This week you followed up. We have a great deep dive into yeah. that cray cray uh, brand new file system by Apple. But our first story this week harkens me back to the bad old days of. Me messing around with group policy on Microsoft Windows servers. Yep. I, 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 I remember learning this stuff and then later teaching this stuff. Yeah. And do you remember how much it changed from NT4 to Active Directory?
1: From I didn't do much with NT4 originally. Uh, but after I had learned and was teaching at, uh, for like uh, towards server 2003 and even yeah. uh, betas of 2008 mm-hmm. – I then set up a Samba server as an, a okay. domain controller. Yeah. And back then, Samba 3 could only be an NT4-style right. domain controller. So I learned how, a little bit about how the NT4 stuff worked right. in order to have a bunch of XP clients where the domain controller was actually a Samba server. There was some simplicity to it that was nice. And so I didn't have all the tools. So literally what you did was you'd open RegEdit uh, mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. this dot, uh, .ntuser.dat file. And it was just the, a whole registry hive that would get overlaid on the computer's local one every time the user logged in. And so I basically had to manually create some of these group policies with all the fancy tools. It was a little bit less fun. Yeah, importing all that stuff and then
0: saving the policy file to the net login directory or whatever it was. that yep. was net login. Yeah, but group policy, although it doesn't really function like that anymore at all, um, uh, it's actually, under the hood, it's all still there. Yeah, well, still mod- modifying the registry, right? But what I'm saying is, like, you don't have to move it and put in the net login directory. But under right. the it's hood, it's... nice
1: GUI tools on top of it now. Yeah.
0: And under the hood, it's still
1: um, a complicated beast. And I guess something went awry. <clears throat> what happened, Alan? Tell me about yes. this. Yes. Uh, so, starting with the background, group policies are a powerful set of Windows registry settings uh, that are downloaded and applied uh, to the computer when it joins the domain or when a user logs in. There's actually multiple layers. So you can have policies that apply to every machine and then policies that apply to users in this group and policies apply to users in that group. So when an individual user logs in, it could apply multiple layers of policy depending on what groups they're in. And, and there's a whole priority system to make sure that the most oh, yeah. important one wins right. and so on. Right,
0: right, because you, yeah, and, and depending on the, the structure of your organizational units in your active directory, you could have inherited group policies applied yep. to different uh, members and, yeah. So you can create, like, <laughs> yeah. company-wide
1: policies, yeah. policies for everybody that works in this office, Woo! and then policies for people that are in the admin group or not Woo! in the admin group or yeah. their manager. And, and it so is so. legitimately useful
0: as somebody who has yes. deployed these before. You know, I had branches that with, you know, you structured OUs
1: that would work their way up and at different levels you'd yep. have different and things. And you'd somewhere. have, like, yeah, you know, this manager can create and yeah. set some permissions for other people and lots of stuff. And group policies are just simply absolutely
0: mandatory when you're doing a terminal server because when you have 25, 30, 50 users sharing a single
1: Windows box, you have to put some fences up. And you well, have- it's not just that. Like, uh, group policy objects allow the administrator to control settings and access mm-hmm. to the Windows computer yeah. from the, the domain controller. Well, and so- everything
0: from like proxy to even some installation settings for
1: software. Yep. Well, you can do things like you can make the run menu completely disappear. You yeah. can make the whole start menu disappear if you really want. You know, you can lock something down like it's a, a kiosk. But um, you can hide specific drives. So when you go to my computer, certain drives don't show up. Uh, you can control whether they can install certain applications. You can ha- cause certain applications to be installed if they're not already installed every time the user logs in. Um, you could do... All kinds of things. It's like the Windows (laughs) application whitelisting that you want to do for security. Mm -hmm. That's all there. Mm -hmm. All of the security policies. Login messages. What types of of networking encryption to use? Everything like that. Basically, all the settings on their computer are applied via these group policies. That's one of the things that actually makes Windows compelling in the enterprise. Yeah, is that you'd have this system where, you know, every user's you have the centralized control you set up a couple of overlapping rules and everybody's computer just works and it's really the only way to restrict what users can do on their computer you know there's a group policy that you can disable external media so that people can't just plug in a usb stick uh and save files off to it you know if you have to stop people from being able to exfiltrate data from your business that's an important thing so it makes it a really big deal that what happened this week (laughs) So on June 14th, Microsoft released uh, their regular Patch Tuesday, uh, which is like five critical updates and 11 important updates and a bunch of other updates. One of them, MS-16072, uh, which is security update for group policy, uh, which is rated as important for all supported versions of Windows. Uh, it broke everything. <laughs> So, uh, an elevation of privilege vulnerability exists when uh, Microsoft Windows processes group policy updates. Uh An attacker who successfully exploits this vulnerability could potentially escalate permissions or perform additional privileged actions on a target machine. To exploit this vulnerability, an attacker would need to launch a man-in-the-middle attack against the traffic between a domain controller and the target machine. If you log in on your laptop over a VPN or something that connects back to your domain controller, that can do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, An attacker could then create a group policy of their own that grants uh, administrator access to a standard unprivileged user. The security uh, update addresses the vulnerability and uh, enforces Kerberos authentication for uh, for certain calls over LDAP. But basically, if I was man-in-the-middle between you and your domain controller, I could cause you to download an extra group policy that promotes Hmm. the regular user, which I've compromised on your machine, to being administrator, and now I'm administrator. Hmm. So this way, you know, when I get access to some um, regular user on a machine, you know, if I'm attacking the – the weakest point in a company is often somebody who's just opening email attachments. So I find one person who's willing to open an email attachment. I've infected their computer, taken it over. Now, if I can man in the middle that computer or another one, I can make it make that user administrator, and then I can go further and further. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so Microsoft released this update to solve this this flaw by basically, for certain calls where it's important, they use Kerberos authentication. Uh, It's not clear why they don't use that for everything all the time, but, you know, anyway. Uh, Later, uh, I think one or two days later, uh, Microsoft (laughs) released a knowledge Base article, KB uh, 3163622. Okay. It's interesting that they're already (laughs) past three million Base. (laughs) I remember when they used to only have six digits. Um, It says, MS16072 changes the security context with which user group policies are retrieved this by design behavior change protects customers computers from security vulnerabilities before the patch uh, is installed. User group policies were retrieved by using the user security context. So when the user logs in, it would as that user go and fetch their group policies. After the uh, update is installed, user group policies are retrieved by using the computer's security context. Mm -hmm. So the computer account does it now. Um, The symptom of the problem is that all user group policies, including those that have been uh, security filtered on user accounts or security groups, or both, may fail to apply on domain-joined computers. So, all of a sudden, all your group policies stop applying, and your computer is completely open, and none of your security policies are applied to any of these computers that have the update.
0: Just Could you picture for a moment if that happened to you at some large enterprise at scale. This
1: happened at a whole bunch of large enterprises just, at scale. Just, That's the point of
0: the story. I know, I know. I'm just saying, could you just... Put yourself yeah. in that situation like for a moment.
1: Oh yes. Uh, so we happen to be having our security audit, day, and all of a sudden, anybody can do anything because all the group policies yeah. stop working.
0: And just I'm just thinking back to my terminal server environment; just would have been, yep. it just would have been destroyed that day.
1: Not only just yeah. because it's the user, oh, this user can take over anything. They can install stuff, uninstall right. stuff, see stuff they're not supposed to. Uh,
0: not not only that, but uh, just just some things don't function properly unless they're defined with group
1: policy right. settings. Well, in the other one's like. One of the main things we use group policies for is force the My Documents directory to live on a network drive. So when users save their My Document, it would always go to a network drive, not the local computer. So when they logged in on a different computer, the documents would still be there and they were centrally located so we could back them up. Right? That's a very common thing to do. That would stop working. All of a sudden, people go to My Documents and it would be empty because they've never saved anything on this computer before. Uh, so all the users think all their files are gone. And then, <laughs> or they do save some files there and it only exists on that one computer. And you know they sit down at a different computer the next day and not the same thing, right? they're mm-hmm. oh, like, man. oh, I can't access these files from home anymore. And yeah, on on. yeah, that, you know,
0: in fact, where I where I worked, we would have printers installed at login based on group policy. Uh, it was or it, network
1: drives created. I oh, sure, say, oh, absolutely. I have no yeah. K drive anymore.
0: <laughs> so they basically, would leave offices just. I'm just, I'm just as un- a support, as somebody who would have been in the role of supporting that, I just, woo, what a bad day. I'm just picturing that down. <laughs>
1: uh, so the cause was uh, this issue may occur if the group policy object is missing the read permission for the authenticated users group, or if you are using security filtering and are missing the read permission for the domain computers group, uh, which I'm guessing by the number of people hit by this is probably the default. Uh, so by default, users are allowed to read the group policies to, to apply them, but... You didn't normally let machines do it. But now all of them are downloaded as the machine, not as the user. Uh, And they didn't have access to read the group policy. And, uh, yeah. So to resolve this, uh, (laughs) use the Group Policy Management Console or gpmc.msc and then add the authenticated users and uh, the domain computers group uh, with the read permission as a group policy object. To, to, to resolve this, burn them all to the
0: ground and leave. Just walk out of the place. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, uh, I'd love you to get a war story.
1: Add the computer, uh, domain computers group as read permission. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, this issue struck a large number of Windows administrators, some of them extremely hard. Hmm. Uh, group policy objects are the main tool administrators have to enforce policy throughout the network. Uh, one of been reported that their desktop images are configured so that the A, B, C, and D drives are hidden and don't show up in my computer so that users will save files to the network drive instead of the local computer and so on. Uh, and all of a sudden, people log in and all these drives are there. <laughs> and they're not supposed to be. I do not mean to laugh, but this is just. Yeah. Uh, other users report having their printers and drive mappings oh, become inaccessible. Of yeah. Security group settings no longer applying. It could be every, backgrounds change on them. You
0: know, uh, yep. uh, login messages that you accept before you log into the system going away, which would violate many companies' uh, terms of service and policy that you agree to. Yes. When you... It's like you have to make the
1: user a- agree to this, otherwise we can't fire them for not yeah. doing. Yeah. All yeah. Cool. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then. Well, yeah, or even just, yeah, we uh, install uh, a custom wallpaper that has, like, um, I see that. Schools do it all the time. It's like we got the name of the school, the number to call for tech support, some information like that.
0: Yeah, the, or, the chat room saying what kind of admin would install this without uh, testing it. And I agree to an extent, but this particular one, you would have to have all are, your different group policy scenarios in your testing environment. And that yeah. might be too complex to really fully yeah. pull off. You can do different groups well, of users for sure.
1: but This is the official Microsoft Patch Tuesday patches that we're all supposed to install as quickly as possible. Microsoft is supposed to have set, tested this, not
0: me. Yeah. Plus, you're going to have some auto updates just because there's yep. so many machines that come configured that way
1: now with auto yep. updates turned on. Either oh, by yeah, OEMs or, even if it didn't hit the machines that you control with WSUS right. SUS or whatever. Exactly. Every laptop that's joined to your domain that's mm-hmm. actually controlled by the end user,
0: mm-hmm. or all every such, exception to
1: your WSUS, uh, or for every user
0: that you don't have in the testing. I mean, it's just it's it's really complex for the admin, so you can't really blame them for this particular one. I don't think.
1: I would love to get war oh, yeah, and from And Apparently, him. Windows 10 doesn't let you control it, right? Except for in a domain environment.
0: Yes, right. Well, uh, yeah. I think, I guess, you know, I'd not really play with Windows 10 what, enough to Yeah.
1: I, I, I'm never going to.
0: <laughs> you know, I actually, the machine you're calling me on right now is a Windows 10 machine, just so we get a nice Skype call. Uh, but that's the only thing I use it for, so I have no idea. It does It does automatically reboot into Linux from time to time, which is the irony of the whole thing. When they install patches, it just turns into a Linux box. It just reboots into Linux, and then I have to restart the thing again and choose Windows at the bottom of the boot list. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. I I just... I feel super bad for anybody on our audience. I'm sorry if my laughing has come across as um, not feeling your pain. Uh, it's just, I just yeah. can't, I can only imagine. So if you have a war story or you want to share it with us, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose Textnet from the drop down or email textnet at jupiterbroadcasting.com.
1: We talk about this a lot, right? It's the security updates. We need to get these installed. Otherwise, we're vulnerable to these known vulnerabilities, uh, but- you know every once in a while there's a bad update in there and that causes people to be all right I'm going to wait a week before I install the Microsoft patch Tuesday updates and let other people run into this problem first and then Microsoft will pop a post with the resolution and I'll install my updates you know on the next Tuesday i guess uh, yeah and yeah for sure and then your machines are all vulnerable to this attack for a week and you you know it's not a there's not a real
0: win. I mean, obviously practicality has to win out in this situation. Yep. And there is a quantifiable issue of downtime when group policy goes haywire versus yep. a possible outage due to a breach from a security issue. And you mm-hmm. make the Sony decision and you decide it's it's cheaper not to patch for a little while. But the problem is that little while sometimes becomes a long while and then we know what happens. Yep. It bites you eventually. Yep. Do you do you think
1: an equivalent? Well, yeah, yeah. What's going to happen when you do get hit with something and there was a patch and you didn't install it.
0: Yes, exactly. That's going to happen eventually, even if it's just by a browser uh, infection. Um, Do you think an equivalent to the Unix side of this would be like a library getting updated or uh, like uh, something getting updated on a Unix machine that like totally borks the KDE desktop or something? Like we're trying to figure out like what's an equivalent (laughs) – Yeah, <laughs> you can't yeah, log in anymore. Yeah, if PAM was destroyed. I'm just trying to think of like does something like this kind of scale of buffoonery doesn't seem to happen right on the Unix side of things where something like at the group policy level just goes completely haywire and everything well, this, that you expect to be the way it is major falls apart, change,
1: right? Like this this wasn't just uh, How did Microsoft you know, a Microsoft security miss this? patch. Yeah, well, it, basically it wasn't just a small security patch to to fix a flaw. It was It turns out the way we're doing this is dangerous, and we need to actually do it as a different user. Yeah. And all of a sudden, that user doesn't have permission. Yeah. You know, it it was in particular, this particular update was a much wider scope update than what you would expect, especially when it's rated as important and you're expected to install it right away.
0: Yeah, that just feels like uh, maybe that's when they should uh, do extra testing.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure. But, you know, uh, I wonder, uh, I don't know what percentage of people this is actually affected. And uh, in particular, it seems it doesn't hit the default case. But if you do use the uh, security filtering, which I'm sure all of the guides tell you is something you really should do, then it only hits you there. And so if, it, if it's only hitting people that are actually taking security seriously, <laughs> then that yeah. hurts a lot more. Yeah, that's true. Uh, all right. Any other thoughts
0: yep. on that particular uh, story? Okay, well then I'll tell you about DigitalOcean. I was just checking right here. I was just logged into my dashboard because uh, the other day when I was working in my DigitalOcean dashboard, I swear for a brief moment, I saw the new. I do. I have access to the new block storage beta. <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, currently only available in NYC one for me. So I, I don't know if I I have to. Do I have any. Uh, do I have any droplets right now in the New York or one data center? If I don't, I'll have to create one. Because that's, that's what I'm talking about. So DigitalOcean just keeps getting better. It's my go-to Linux infrastructure or BSD infrastructure. Got to give them a shout-out for BSD, too. On demand. DigitalOcean.com. Go there and check them out and use our promo code SNAPOcean. That's one word. You put that in the billing section, and you get a $10 credit. Now, here's what's great about that. So their pricing plans start at $5 a month for their basic rig, which will get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20-gigabyte SSD, a blazing fast CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. They're all SSDs, too, and it just works really easily with the pricing. But here's the great thing. If you look at their pricing page, I recommend toggle it over to hourly. See, in the hourly section here, you get a better sense of what DigitalOcean actually is going to cost you. I have uh, – let me see. Do I have – I think I have them pulled up right here, actually. Let me see. So right now, uh, I have – I'll tell you how many droplets I have running full-time. One, two, three, four, five – Out of six, seven, eight, nine, out of nine droplets total, I have only some of them running all the time. This is the the secret sauce to using DigitalOcean and getting the most out of it, because then you're talking hourly pricing. You can create and destroy machines within seconds at DigitalOcean, spin them up with entire application stacks or just the base system. Their interface is simple, fast, easy to use, and they have a great API on top of all of that. So you can take advantage of code that's already written or write your own. And they have libraries that plug into your favorite languages. It's really a nice setup. And you use that promo code SNAPOcean, you support the show, and you can spin your own rig up. They have have data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Germany, and India. It's a really good service. Mm -hmm. I just uh, have been playing around recently with uh, my own private family, like, location tracker. So we all (laughs) log into it. I have it hosted on a DigitalOcean droplet, and we can send location updates to each other and I just thought that'd be a nice thing to have from time to time and I don't really want to use the hosted service and I decided to play with three or four um, different OSs so I did Fedora and I did two different versions of Ubuntu that counts really and then I did two different open source tracking projects and the, the ability to just create a, create an entire machine ready to go with everything I need installed and then also try it on a completely blank system and, and try things like a container with the program in there versus building it myself and seeing what the differences mm-hmm. were and seeing how they're all set up and being able to do all of that, just boom, 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 really super fast. I'm not kidding. Uh, I, I did it all before Linux, um, or no, I did it all, I did Coda Radio and Linux Plugged on Tuesday, and I did all of that before I started Koda Radio, like a half hour before I started Coder Radio. I was able to set all of that up, because DigitalOcean is just so stinking fast. DigitalOcean.com, use the promo code SNAPOcean, and get started. DigitalOcean.com. Thank you, DigitalOcean. Now I'm going to go play with block storage. <laughs> So we talk a lot about ZFS on this show, and I have gone on the record as somebody who is not satisfied with HFS for the two Macs we have in production here now. And it's still the bane of my existence. So I was kind of impressed and excited when I heard Apple has its own file system. I was a little let down when I realized it wasn't going to be ZFS. Yeah. Uh, but you gave us some really good highlights of sort of the history of Apple and ZFS uh, last it week. ended
1: up not being ZFS. Yeah, and that uh, was fascinating. So now mm-hmm. this is sort of the other side of that coin, isn't it? Yes. Uh, so Adam Leventhal was actually at the Worldwide Developer Conference and got to talk to some of the people actually working on APFS and knew the right questions to ask as being one of the people that worked on ZFS and knows mm. a lot of the internals. Perfect. Um, so building on the, that stuff from uh, last week, oops, wrong button. Anyway, um, he's basically done a breakdown of what what he's seen of APFS so far. Uh, so this is like five separate posts (laughs) (laughs) uh i I had a heads up uh, a leg up on most people and that uh, he invited me to uh, review this before he posted it uh so i had a little bit more time to digest some of this oh that's great alan uh he's got a a breakdown of uh what he knows about apfs so far so uh, the apple file system uh was itself started in 2014 uh with uh dominic as the lead engineer and it's a standalone from scratch implementation uh Specifically, uh, Adam asked him, you know, had he looked for inspiration in other modern file systems like uh, Dragonfly BSD's Hammer FS or Linux's ButterFS or OpenZFS, which is available on like every operating system except Mac OS and Windows. Uh, and a, a lot of which have the features that APF intends to deliver. Uh, but Dominic explained that, well, he is a self-described file systems guy and he wrote the file system for BIOS back in the day. Uh, he was aware of all these other ones, but he didn't really delve into them too much because he didn't want to taint himself. Hmm. He wanted to basically build a new file system from scratch, which I understand why, as a developer, it'd be interesting to build your own file system from scratch. Sure. As far as from a uh, from a consumer side, it's like I kind of wish you would use something that was uh, has had a little bit more time proving it.
0: Well, you know. and there's always a benefit to more systems supporting the same file systems. Uh, exactly.
1: I, you know, if, if, if you and have universal compatibility. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, so it says, APS first and foremost uh, pays down the unsustainable technical debt that Apple has been carrying around with HFS and HFS Plus. Uh, the original HFS was in- introduced in 1985 when the Mac 512K just the model, but actually meant it only had 512 kilobytes of RAM, uh, was Apple's flagship product. Uh, HFS Plus uh, uh, was a significant iteration and improvement, and that shipped originally in 1998 with the G3 Power Mac, which came with a 4 gigabyte hard drive. Uh, Since then, storage capacities have increased by a factor of 1 million and 1,000, respectively. You know, uh, everybody, you can have up to 512 gigs of RAM and four terabytes of storage is no problem. You know, actually, technically, you can have four petabytes of storage, probably not in one computer very easily. but Not yet. <laughs> well, actually, you can have four petabytes in one computer. It would just have to be a true NAS. <laughs> <laughs> just have to be a big yeah. computer. <laughs> yeah. uh, so anyway, he breaks down some of the specific uh, bullet points about APFS. So the first one is compression. Right? This seems like an easy win and it doesn't make sense for any file system not mm-hmm. to have transparent compression, especially with how big of a win this is on ZFS. Because it's not just about getting back the extra space on ZFS. It also improves speed. Right. You know, on our database, especially databases that are full of text or anything that's text like that, like the d source code checkout I have, it compresses at things like 2 to 1, 3 to 1, 4 to 1. Well, if I have to read or if I have 100 megabytes of data to write... uh. And my drive can write 100 megabytes a second, then it takes one second to write that data. If I compress that data two to one, uh, it's only 50 megabytes that actually has to get written, get the 100 megabytes of data compressed down. It means it only takes half a second to do that now. It means my drive can actually write 200 megabytes a second of compressed data, because it's actually only going to write 100 megabytes yeah. of physical data.
0: Yeah, and especially and so, it with Apple. can double Apple in the- or triple the <gasps> speed of your disk. Apple's in the unique position, too, especially with the iPhones. Remember, this stuff's going to work on iOS devices. Mm-hmm. they, I think they already do ship a hardware uh, decompression. They do some mm-hmm. sort of compression now on the iPhone. I think they have hardware offloading for the compression and decompression of it.
1: Yeah. Uh, and so especially on space constrained devices like the iphone and the apple watch and so on where even on an iphone it's like whoa i have 32 gigs of space it's like well it'd be really nice if certain things took up a lot less of that space now obviously pictures and so on are probably not going to help uh, get much help from compression right right yeah. uh, <clears throat> so interestingly uh, about compression uh in typical Apple fashion, they will neither confirm nor deny while strongly implying that it's definitely a feature that you can expect from APFS.
0: <laughs> you know, something in here strikes me as funny, too, is uh, <clears throat> it feels like they are sort of looking at some of these features and going, well, that's a good feature. Let's just lift it. So it's like they're creating it from scratch, but the the ideas are yeah. coming from well-established practices. And, and, and
1: while that's fine, the big one is because they didn't tell anybody about this until just now and they're saying they're going to ship it in 18 months, it means all the points we bring up now saying, hey, you really forgot about this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like, are they really going to have time to get that in there?
0: No, that, this have, they're going to have to iterate on this.
1: Yeah. Uh, so encryption. So encryption is clearly a core feature of APFS. This comes uh, from diverse requirements from the various devices. Uh, for example, multiple keys within file systems for iPhones or per-user keys for laptops and so on. Although I do wonder how many Mac users actually share their laptop with another person, hmm. like where they would actually have separate logins.
0: Mr. Panic in the chat reminds us that
1: uh, semi-recently, not attached to the
0: file system announcement, Apple announced uh, a new compression standard at the previous WWDC. I wonder if they will be using that, in, and which is going to be open source, they say. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, so... When it comes to uh, encryption, they'll have three different flavors of it, apparently. So you can have a file system that's uh, unencrypted, or you can have a file system that has a single key, so you just have, uh, you know, passphrase, like typical full disk encryption. You have one key, and all your metadata, all your user data, everything is encrypted with that. Or you can have multi-key with uh, a different key for, say, the metadata, so that key is maybe in the machine and is available as soon as it boots up, so that you can get a directory listing, but you can't access individual files without... The, a second key that's maybe attached to you having to log in. Or there's a key that uh, gets added to memory when you log in, and so you can uh, access directories and so on, but certain files will require you to enter yet another password or something. Uh, and apparently it will even support sections of a file. So, you know, uh, part of the file is encrypted one way, and part of the file is encrypted another way. I don't know... Uh, on a phone and so on, that might make sense. I don't know on, in a general file system use case if it makes sense to have different extents of the same file uh, have yeah, different permissions. Yeah. But
0: it does seem like something that might be more mobile focused. Yeah. Which you wonder how many concessions like that are they going to make?
1: Yeah, is uh multi-key encryption is particularly relevant uh, for portables where all data might be encrypted, but unlocking your phone provides access to an additional key and therefore additional data. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be working in the first beta of macOS Sierra. Uh, specifically, file encryption uh, when creating a new volume with DiskUtil results in a file system that reports is encrypted equals no. Oh. Hmm. So he couldn't play much with... So uh, even if the flags software. in the UI doesn't do anything at this point. Yeah. Okay. Uh, APFS apparently supports constant time cryptographic file system erase called effaceable uh, in the disk util output. This presumably builds a secret key that cannot be extracted from APFS, so maybe stored in a hardware HSM or something, or a TPM module, um, and encrypts the entire file system with it. So if you want to do a secure erase of your laptop, it's only a matter of destroying that key uh, and then. No one can ever decrypt a file system, and it's as if you erase the whole file system. So instead of having to do your regular secure erase, that doesn't you know that involves scrambling and rescrambling the whole disk contents, yeah, which yeah. can take hours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, various iOS documentations refer to this capability uh, requiring some specialized hardware. It will be uh, interesting to see uh, what option what that actually means for macOS itself. Are uh-huh. they going to include this hardware, or how are they going to manage? Right, that? is that something P- going to start building into Macs? Yeah. Uh, he says, either way, let's not mention this to the FBI or the NSA. okay? <laughs> yeah, this can take. Give them a few years of uh, at least let, a head let them start. Let ship it. Yeah, first. <laughs> they'll figure it out pretty quick, I bet. <laughs> so snapshots, APFS will support snapshots, but uh, likely won't have the same type of serialization option like ZFS send. Um, serialization, as in the way the data actually transfers over the network. Well, um, yeah. So you can't. You won't be able to to do like incremental. Uh, replication of snapshots or something like in ZFS. Oh. So you'll still have snapshots on the file system, but you won't be able to like, copy just the snapshot. Right? In ZFS, the snapshot is its own thing, and you can copy just the range of blocks that are in that snapshot, where in Time Machine it's probably not going to... or in uh, APFS it's probably not going to work that way. Uh, part of that is because they need to support Time Machine's features, which allows you to um, exclude certain files or certain types of files. Whereas with ZFS, it doesn't even know about the files. At the snapshot level, it's just these are the blocks that have changed between this snapshot and the current system, or this snapshot and that snapshot. Okay. Huh. Uh, whereas the Apple version is probably going to be more tied to files and yeah. less to just the blocks yeah. uh, to support features of Time Machine and so on.
0: Time machine and other sync solutions. One of their big features yeah. in the new Mac OS too is uh they're gonna start I just can't even whoo they're gonna start automatically syncing the files you don't use often up to iCloud and then remove them off your local file system and do like what is essentially a symbolic link to the cloud version.
1: Yeah, and then uh, you cancel your iCloud account or lose the password and can't reset it or whatever. And or get
0: decided you know, honestly, Alan, the other thing is Apple has some of the highest cloud storage prices out there. Mm-hmm. iCloud mm-hmm. is very expensive and your all your iOS devices and your Macs all write to the same cloud storage account, so yep. it can get very expensive.
1: Yeah, uh, And it says, right now, APFS is incompatible with Time Machine because it lacks the ability to do directory hard links, which is the fairly disgusting implementation that uh, Time Machine uses right now. And it's probably why Time Machine has questionable reliability. Uh, Hopefully, APFS will create some uh, efficient serialization for Time Machine backups, but it's unlikely to be much like the ZFS one. Okay. Uh, separately, uh, Eric Tamura, uh, who's an APFS developer manager, uh, demonstrated snapshots at WWDC, and, uh, but said um, the required utility is not included in the Mac OS Sierra beta disk that uh, was given out at the WWDC. So again, not a feature that uh, he could play with just yet. Yeah,
0: you know that is pretty common. Actually, they they have something that's in an earlier build than what they re- like. They, I guess they have at Apple a process where they make a WWDC build and they try to get it semi stable. And then the then the builds they actually are using themselves at at WWDC are often maybe that's even cool. a month newer. So and then they, and then they do eventually or distribute. the other way it's they they were going to include snapshot found something that made it yeah. not work and yeah. just
1: pulled the feature out of the disc.
0: I wouldn't be surprised if in with even a week we saw we did a bit come out. So
1: interesting, right. uh, in, in particular for that one. Getting that many disks printed uh, for a conference like that <laughs> usually requires having the master ready a couple of weeks ahead of time. Yeah. Or, uh, in this case, thumb drives. <laughs> ah, well, thumb drives are a little easier than printed CDs. You still have to have the master uh, version ready to go. Exactly. Though. Yep. Uh, and so you'll probably have an update. Uh, so for management stuff, APFS brings another new feature known as space sharing. Hmm. Uh, a single APFS container, which is probably what we uh, – kind of analogous to a dataset on ZFS, that spans a huh. device – or sorry, the container is the pool. So a container is like a pool, and then it contains multiple volumes, which are like uh, a data set. Yeah, okay. Um, Apple contrasts this with the static allocation of disk space to support multiple HFS Plus instances. You know, your regular partitioning with uh, old-fashioned file systems. Uh, but that seems kind of specious and not and uncommon. How many people have a Mac with multiple different partitions that are also that are each HFS Plus?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Probably not that many. Yeah, uh, it'd just be a few high-end use cases, right? Yeah. Uh, Both ZFS and ButterFS have a similar concept of a shared pool of storage with nested file systems for administration and management. Hmm. Uh, For clones, Apple's uh, sort of unique contribution to space efficiency is what's called constant time cloning of files and directories. Hmm. Uh, With APFS, if you copy a file within the same file system, uh, no data is actually duplicated. Instead, a constant amount of metadata is updated and the on-disk data is shared between the two copies. Uh, you know, this is something that uh, it's kind of like the ButterFS. Um, is it like reflinks or whatever they're called? Hmm. Um, and then changes yeah. to either copy uh, cause new space to be allocated. You know, copy on write. So style. in ButterFS, the disadvantage is you
0: you have essentially uh, dark matter on your hard drive eating up space. And when you go to get a free space report from say DF, it doesn't see the metadata. Mm-hmm. And so df will report you have 70% of your your partition free when in reality you may only have 5% free because the rest is being eaten up by that metadata that's just constantly taking up
1: space on the hmm. disk. Well, now that's weird cuz ZFS the metadata is always included in the usage and so there are tools your free space would always yeah. report the wrong number. There are you you just don't or use right you number.
0: don't you have to use different tools. So Apple wow. would have to update all of their tools to be aware of that which I'm sure they would.
1: Right but, so so the, the what's called the uh, Solaris porting layer, or sorry, no, the other one. What's the... The ZFS POSIX layer, the ZPL. Okay. um, Actually make sure that all the old commands worked. Sure. Now, they can be slightly confusing because the way DF works uh, with ZFS is the amount of free space uh, probably stays the same. Yeah, the amount of free space is always the size... Of the,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Sorry, how does it work again? Anyway, the free space, uh, it, it's right, but it's confusing. So the amount of free space shows the amount of free space, uh, but the used space is usually like zero, and the size of the drive shrinks. Oh, interesting. Because, because you have multiple data sets all sharing the same pool, right? So if you have you know, five file systems on your ZFS, uh, they're all sharing the same pool. So if you write to one of them, its use space goes up, uh, the free space of all of them goes down, but the size of all of them goes down okay. as well. Okay. So, like uh, – like- So, it, it required some hackery to – but it, ZFS makes sure that the applications don't need to know specifically about ZFS, although when <laughs> you look at the output of DF, it can be very confusing uh, on ZFS if you don't know what is happening.
0: So, uh, as Panic points out in the chat room um, – ButterFS itself, the project, even documents the fact that ButterFS doesn't properly calculate free space on the disk.
1: Right. Whereas on ZFS, the POSIX layer makes sure that all these old tools still work, although sometimes they get what looks like confusing output. So on, Uh, on ButterFS, you have to use the command
0: btrfs space fi for file system information show. And then that will give you an accurate reading of your free, so I, don't, I, I would imagine this would probably be an issue for Apple's implementation too. However, I would probably, I would have faith that Apple would would likely just yeah. universally because update all of their tools. So yeah, yeah. Exactly. the file even even from the GUI
1: file explorer down well, to the would command think, line tools. Actually, I would but we'll think. get to the point right now. I, oh, okay. I think it's the next point. But Before we get to that, but <laughs> <Uh-oh. laughs> um, interesting is the other one is um, SambaShare Offset FS. Mm. Um, If I look at my drive, it shows used space is like 600 kilobytes, which is totally not correct. Oh, right. And the free space is 2.58 terabytes. Yeah. If I write a terabyte to that, the free space will just go down. Sorry, the size of the drive will go down, which will cause the free space to go down. Right. And the used space will never go up. (laughs) Uh, But it means that you actually do always know exactly how much free space you have. Yeah. And it's right. Yeah. It's just when it changes, it's the size of the drive that changes, not but I can, the amount of respect. I could
0: wrap my head around that. That makes sense. See, for somebody yes. well, who's used DF— It makes sense,
1: except for it always shows that the drive is 100% full. Free. Yeah, oh, no, 100% free. 100% free. Right. 0% used. So that— And the drive just gets smaller. That's
0: a little wonky.
1: I could see yes. that, Yeah. yeah. But okay. it's the only way to make the old tool work. Yeah,
0: yeah. Instead of just completely reporting— See, the problem with the way DF works now with ButterFS is if you don't know that, you will, you will totally fill up your SSD. And then the, 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 the double whammy good thing about ButterFS is if you have it on an SSD and you fill the file system, it runs like a 5400 RPM where's the IDE that. drive it is some SSDs when they get that full would literally pause for a minute at a time it is monstrously bad so it's like a double offense because a lot of Linux users like to use butterfs because it works pretty well and is optimized to work on an SSD drive but then you have this problem where it doesn't actually properly report free space so you're more likely to screw up your SSD where you're more also often under a certain amount of disk pressure because SSDs are expensive it's just the perfect storm of problems so there's, so there's my – that's why when Apple says they're doing this, I'm like, mm,
1: okay. So we're going to get to all of those things now, which is great. Uh, so, yeah, as a quick aside, files on macOS are often really directories. It's just a convenient lie they tell to allow logically related collections of files be treated as an individual unit. Yeah. You can see this but if you right click an application it's like show package content, yep. and it's just a DMG. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, oftentimes what looks like a file on macOS is actually they call a, it a bundle with a bunch of files. To the yeah.
0: end user they call it an application bundle and it's yeah. so on a Mac well, you have dot no, that's, .apps that's, Yeah, And those .apps are really a bundle of a lot of directories and files in there. And then they have directories like the iPhoto library, which is actually a directory, but it represents as one file in the Mac UI.
1: Yeah, and a bunch of stuff like that. Uh, Side note, if you use Finder, which is basically the equivalent of Windows Explorer for Mac, right? Yes. If you use Finder to copy a file, it creates this space-efficient clone of it. If you use the command-line CP tool... It doesn't. Uh see, exactly. That's 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 exactly but, the problem. That's missing. Like, oh man, things. that's
0: going to make the Mac so annoying to use. Well, I don't know if they're going to keep that. They might fix. Oh, it. that's true. They might. Yeah, uh, but then, but, uh, but, but aren't they just using the most,
1: upstream CP and and well, and MV? In particular, most of those tools are they copied from FreeBSD. So they would theoretically uh, have to no, patch upstream because they sync up every now and then. The user userland. I don't know how often they sync up. I think every I major release it was. I know the original version was FreeBSD 5. I don't know uh, when the last time they updated was. I think they sync up every major macOS release.
0: At least they have in the past. I don't know if they have last time. I don't follow it. Well,
1: obviously for APFS, they would probably have to carry their own local patches to it. Yeah, or just... Just also, I that, don't think the CP tool in FreeBSD has changed since last time they updated. I would also,
0: I could also see Apple just say, "Well, we have new commands you use on the command line for that." Uh, like you know, they have a disk util command that replaces all disk management that is their own command line utility.
1: Yep. Uh-huh. But you know, there's a reason why ZFS did jump through all these hoops to have a POSIX layer to work with all your existing tools, uh, which we are now yeah, thankful Sometimes for. it's not. Not perfect, but it usually is enough to make things actually work as opposed to, you know, ButterFS was like, oh yeah, you got 70% free. So you, you try to set up monitoring to give you an alert when you're running out of space, and it's like, well, SNMP and DF and everything says we have 70% right. free, when really we have 5%. Yep. But don't worry, Alan, they're going to get to that. They're, they'll get to that. The ButterFS is going to be good
0: one day. They're, gonna, they're really close. SUSE uses it as the default file system, so...
1: Mm. Does anybody use that
0: OS?
1: (laughs) Anyway. Uh, So, performance. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) APFS claims to be optimized for flash, uh, which we kind of expect. You know, most new Macs are going to have flash. Mm. And the phones. SSDs mimic the block interface of conventional hard drives. But the underlying technology is completely different. In particular, while magnetic media can read and write sectors arbitrarily, flash uh, flash has to erase large chunks or blocks and then read and write smaller chunks of pages. Uh, the management is done by what's called the flash translation layer. It basically maps old-fashioned sector numbers to where it actually put it on the flash, which is necessarily in the same order, and it can rearrange them and move data around to uh, wear out the the flash evenly, instead of you know wearing out one particular chunk really fast. Hmm. Software that makes uh, blocks and pages appear more like a regular hard drive. It's called the Flash Translation Layer. And FTL is uh, very similar to a file system, right? It's creating this virtual mapping of translations between block addresses and locations within the media, which is what a file system does. So Apple controls the full stack, including the SSD, the Flash Translation Layer, and the file system. They could have built something uh, differentiated and optimized these components to work together, but they didn't. APFS does, however, is simply write in patterns known to be more easily handled by NAND flash. So it's just a file system that is only mildly flash-aware, uh, rather than one explicitly written to deal with the native flash interfaces. Uh, but that's more or less what you'd expect in 2016. You know, they they definitely didn't uh, invent any new technology or or do anything special here. I imagine part of the reason is because they want APFS to be able to work on say an external SSD not only on special direct uh, Apple devices. Although in the end, you, may, you know, with Apple being Apple, I, I would also see them forcing you to buy Apple-branded external SSDs that are not exposed, right, that it exposes raw flash not as Yeah, uh,
0: I mean, an I'm, SSD. Su- I'm kind of surprised they're not there already since th- on, on many, many of their most popular models, they, they build in the flash and it's PCI storage. It's on the PCI yeah. bus. It's not on the SATA controller. Mm-hmm. uh and it's it is it is fixed it is soldered to the board. you right. can never upgrade and, and that max so th- how could they not be already with, doing that they're just not bothering There's but they m- But
1: both a p f s this is the opportunity they must be yeah. intending to do that uh it doesn't seem like it. it seems like they will just uh part of it is probably that they're dealing with different devices in the oh, end right but sure the it seems like it seems like the, seems the, like, the phone but, or sorry the the watch will have soldered in NAND yeah. Uh, the phone has, like, an SD card, and the laptop has an NVMe, and they kind of probably want something that works across all of those. Instead.
0: Absolutely, but they also but it are... it seems
1: like they could have built something that actually just talked directly to the NAND instead of needing a flash translation layer. Nobody but Apple is shipping this file system
0: on a on watch, right? Mm-hmm. So they know every single watch that will ever ship in the entire world with their file system. Same with their phones and their laptops. So it seems like th- it's not even, like, a big whitelist or whatever, so you just have... X machines it, when it's this machine with this identifier, and they even control the model identifiers. You just enable uh, the mode, and when you're, I,
1: I just in the end, it could come down to you know their timeline is short enough that they don't want to have to invent new technology. Yeah, They're just going to build. Uh, a is regular that something, something that helps. could
0: change fairly straight in a straight straightforward
1: I manner down don't the road? Think so. Yeah, that's uh, what I thought. You'd <laughs> have to add a whole the whole subsystem. You would have to add just for dealing with the. You'd basically have to write your own flash translation layer in software, uh, which would be really good because it means you can patch it if there's a problem, unlike the firmware one, right? Yeah. But, and it's much easier to debug, but no. Uh, So, it'll just be a regular file system. Slightly, it will write in patterns that are more friendly to an SSD instead of just random, but other than that, there's no special concessions to the fact that it's only going to be designed to work on SSDs. Okay. 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 So less. also unclear what this means if, if you buy an external 4-terabyte hard drive and hook it up and format it APFS. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably not going to it, – it'll probably work. It's just, you know, okay. uh, well, it's probably fine. Shoulder shrug, most, most people that are doing that are probably writing large media files, not lots of small files. Sure. And so the optimizations will be fine on a spinning hard drive anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, APFS will support trim, which is something that HFS Plus doesn't, I don't think. Uh, there is, a, there is, uh, but only yeah. with Apple SSDs. It will
0: not uh, – if you have a third-party well, yes, SSD. Uh, uh, like after
1: it. we've seen the fun with Linux and having to have this whitelist and this blacklist of which SSDs trim command yeah. actually does what you'd expect and which ones don't and so on, yeah. I can understand why. As, I, a, so.
0: you know, as a business, they have also a support department angle to think about these things. And if they can make a, a, a rather insignificant or significant change, depending on your take, and yeah. dramatically reduce uh, significant user problems with third hard drive in their data – and you're, when you're already working with a rickety file system like HFS, probably yeah. the more conservative approach is probably the better exactly. approach.
1: Uh, APFS also will focus on latency. Apple's number one goal is to mm. avoid the beach ball of doom. Uh, APFS addresses this with an I.O. quality of service to prioritize accesses that are immediately visible to the user or background activity that doesn't have the same time constraints. This mm. is inarguably a benefit to users and a sophisticated file system capability. You know, uh, it is definitely something I'd love to see ZFS have one day. Yeah. Uh, It has a little bit of it now where you can uh, prioritize synchronous IOs over asynchronous by just keeping the number of asynchronous in the queue short so that uh, synchronous never has to wait in a very long line before Mm. getting to the head of the the line. But it's not quite the same thing. Uh, Redundancy, another big stumbling block for APFS. Okay, APFS makes no claims with regard to data redundancy. As uh, Apple's Eric Tumara points out at WWDC, Hmm. most Apple devices have a single storage device, like one logical SSD, uh, making RAID, for example, a moot point. Uh, Instead, redundancy comes from lower layers such as Apple RAID, which is apparently going to be a thing, uh, Harbor RAID controllers, SANS, or even just the single storage device itself.
0: You know, this makes sense when you're intending to uh, support uh, deployments that also are co-running HFS, and you want to provide a similar set of features when it comes to RAID for HFS volumes and APFS volumes, so you just... I suppose, but
1: in the Long-term, not so good, is it? Yeah. Any new file system that doesn't deal with the fact that storage is unreliable seems like a bad idea, right? Yeah, Um, I agree. Also, APFS removes the most common way uh, of a user archiving local data for redundancy, copying of files. Because if you copy a file with APFS, you're just creating this lightweight clone with no duplicate data. Corruption of the underlying, uh, from the underlying device would mean that both copies are damaged and uh, you know your full copied localized data just is gone. Wow.
0: So I wonder how that
1: would work if... So if you have one bad sector... The fact that you copied the file doesn't matter because they shared that bad sector.
0: They sh- they probably share the bad sector until the point that they are modified.
1: So mm-hmm. until they're modified, yeah.
0: So if you if you mo- if you tend on <clears throat> if you intend on mo- this is this is going to have to be a weird game. Users will have to remember. If I intend on modifying the file, then this is a genuine copy, a, a version. It's like, So say they have a Photoshop document. They want to change the Photoshop document, and they make a copy of it first. And then they go and change the original. That will be a genuine two-second copy. However, if they just for safety want to have like a, a production folder and a working folder, and they think, well, I have two copies of this file. That's not actually true. They will only actually right. have one copy of the file. Both seem like very common work case scenarios, two yeah. completely different ways of storing files on the back end that the user will have no signal to, uh, as yeah. to what well, is happening.
1: The other obvious one is you delete this 400 <coughs> megabyte file from the, from the <laughs> yeah. working folder and you don't get back 400 megabytes of space. <laughs> right, because <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's, oh. it No, that file in particular wasn't actually taking up any extra space, right? It was a copy of the other file, and that file. You know
0: what I'm getting a whiff of when we talk about how the tools won't read the space right and this kind of stuff. I'm getting a whiff of a, a, an interface design where they never actually intend the user to interact with the file system. Yeah.
1: And, and, and well, that's not as great on sense on an iPhone and an Apple Watch. Right. Right. Less so on macOS. Yeah. But maybe macOS will go more tablet-y. I I guess I would say,
0: too, if you were using ButterFS with copy on write enabled, which uh, some do, many do, this would be similar functionality. So there's a... Remember last week when I said I think a lot of APFS is going to remind me of ButterFS? The more we go into this, the more it is reminding me of ButterFS. Uh,
1: And not in a good way.
0: (laughs) It's more like uh, flashbacks and PTSD uh, things of ButterFS. Yeah. (laughs)
1: But yeah, it's just the fact that it provides absolutely no redundancy is kind of a big problem. Uh, crash consistency. In order to maintain consistency of a file system after a crash, mm-hmm. you need to be able to revert to the, uh, any half-finished operations that happened uh, at the time of the crash. The problem of, with a typical file system is that you're overwriting things in place, and so the old version's not around anymore, right? So it's impossible to go back to right. one second before the crash. APFS claims to implement a novel copy-on-write metadata scheme. So APFS lead developer Dominic Campalo uh, sure. emphasizes the novelty of this approach without delving into any detail. He's like, oh, it's really new and awesome. He's like, well, you want to tell me how it works? It's like, nope. Hashtag magic. Um, in conversation later, he made it clear that APFS does not employ ZFS's mechanism of copying all the metadata up the chain and make, and copy-on-writing it. But basically, it seems like it will copy and write metadata, um, but not the actual user data so that you're not – you're not, um, otherwise, if you destroy the the metadata of your file system, then you can't even see what files are in, your, in a directory. And if you destroy the top-level directory, then you can't see any of the files at all. Hmm. All the data is still there. It's just completely inaccessible because the names and everything are screwy. Huh. So by having copy and write metadata, it means your file system will always work and be there, uh, but if a file you were in the middle of uh overwriting, you likely end up with half old, half new, and the file's gibberish. <laughs> uh, or a file you're just creating might just not show up, right? Uh the, the new metadata for it hadn't been written all the way. We abandoned a new version and we go back and that, that file that you had just you were in the middle of saving when your system crashed, uh just never got created in the first place. <laughs> okay. Uh but, you know, that's what most overwriting file systems would do as well. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the file would show up, but it would be zero bytes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so very common, too. Yeah. It's, it's not really a big loss. It's not a big gain when you're... On write, they're doing copy-on-write right, copy for metadata, so you have much lower chance of garbling the whole file system, you know, which it's good. I would argue that when you are starting out like this, uh,
0: it's, worth, it's worth asking, couldn't they have improved this? Couldn't they have made this particular aspect of file systems better? Uh, yeah. just use different well, to go out, follow different examples maybe
1: well basically they they did the least they could do uh so basically they make sure that your you um a power outage isn't going to make your whole hard drive unusable yeah but the files that you were writing when the power went out there's nothing to be done for that and that's not probably too beyond what a user might expect no uh <clears> it, it's <throat> it's an improvement over what it was and it's still an improvement over say NTFS uh but you know, it's not ZFS.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay.
1: All right. Well, I'll give. I'll definitely uh, another surprise that. is oh. that APFS will include an FSCK command. Hmm. Uh, even after talking to Dominic, Adam still hasn't figured out what it would be necessary for. Although, when in talking, Dominic didn't couldn't understand why ZFS didn't need one. So <laughs> we'll have to see. Uh, we'll find out more and how often you end up needing to FSCK an Apple file system. Now, because Apple's file system is mostly focused on Flash, it doesn't quite suffer the same problem that made people want to write something like ZFS and ButterFS to get rid of FSCK, because you're not going to have you know 100 terabyte storage on your Mac. You're going to have you know, a 500 gig SSD or something. But you also don't want your iPhone running... An FSCK either, right? Come on, won't this thing boot up faster? (laughs) Come on now. (laughs) Uh, Doing file system consistency check, definitely don't turn off your phone right now. Although
0: it's not so bad on the iPhone because they still ship them with 16 gigabytes of storage and stuff. So it's not like it has to take that long. (laughs) But I'm
1: (laughs) Uh, So checksums. Uh, Notably absent from APFS intro talk was any mention of checksums. Hmm. Uh, Checksums are digital... Uh, digest or summary of data used to detect and possibly correct data errors uh, the story here is uh, surprisingly nuanced apfs checksums its metadata uh, but not the user data so it has checksums just like it has copy and write for the metadata It has checksums on it so it make sure that the checksum or that the metadata isn't corrupt but it doesn't bother with the actual user data so apple fs will protect itself but doesn't care so much about your actual files so this seems to be a that's a very intentional
0: choice because obviously then they have the capability of doing checksums
1: right uh again performance it comes down to um, less checksums don't really cost that much performance okay it, the big thing uh it's got a little bit more storage but again okay know, on on uh, zfs you're using was it like 32 bytes of space uh for every block which could be up to a megabyte 32 bytes per megabyte is, is not a big trade-off there.
0: So I, I
1: guess on a mobile device and on, like, really tight constraints, you could... Possibly. Uh, mm. But in particular, again, it's that it doesn't matter if you use the one picture when, your power, when the power went out or when the system crashed. Yeah. As long as the rest of the file system's still okay. It's that, or this is a huge concession they made for their mobile use cases, that the desktops... Awesome. It's
0: possible. Mm, awesome. mm.
1: In that case, I would have expected it to be a feature that could be toggled on and off. But they just decided not to do it. Again, it could be... Yeah, yeah you're just right. time ...or whatever. But it, could so a, so it could be a mount but option, In particular, it's, they, they realize that checksums are important, and they only care about the structure of the file system, not your data. It really seems like just make it a mount option. Yeah. <laughs> it's just done. Easy. Well, yeah, but the Mac user experience is all about you. you don't even want to know what a mount option is, right? So. Uh, The justification for checksumming metadata is strong. There's uh, relatively not that much metadata, and the checksums don't consume much storage, and losing metadata could uh, cast a potentially huge shadow of data loss, right? Even one bit of metadata can affect a huge number of files and a huge amount of data. If, for example, metadata at a top-level directory is corrupted, then potentially all the data on the disk could be rendered inaccessible. ZFS duplicates metadata or even triplicates it for top-level metadata for exactly this reason. Wow. So in ZFS, in addition to having the checksum on the metadata, uh, every single bit of metadata is stored twice. Uh, And if it's like top-level stuff that it basically affects everything, it's actually stored three times. So even if you only have one disk, ZFS is storing two or three copies of that metadata to make sure that it's safe.
0: ZFS heard you like metadata, so they put metadata in your metadata.
1: Yeah, basically each block (laughs) block pointer has three slots for metadata. Hmm. Uh, or three slots for allocations for metadata, and the metadata gets written to three different places on the hard drive. Usually, tries to spread them out. Uh, if you have multiple disks, it even tries to make sure they're not all on the same disk, so that losing a disk won't take out all the copies of. Okay, met- that's clever. I like that. That's really clever. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, but explicitly not check something user data is a little more interesting. The APFS engineers I talked to cited the strong ECC protection within the Apple storage devices. Uh, both flash SSDs hmm. and magnetic uh, media hard drives use redundant data to detect and correct errors. The engineers contend that Apple's devices basically never return bogus data, so they didn't need checksums. Well, now, okay, now of course that's ridiculous. But what about
0: what about the validity that you know you know that every single type of storage chip that's going to be in your devices was built by this manufacturer with this feature set, including error checking? And you had certainty. Yeah. Could you then forfeit a how, software how many, feature for a hardware feature, knowing how, the combo will times, always be there?
1: How, how many times have we had uh, firmware problems with SSDs? Yeah, <laughs> plus, I think, it,
0: I think you can't always guarantee that like, you never know right. what future hardware development is going to have, and maybe yeah. there's hey, going to well, be a big
1: storage change. The reason, and, the reason hard drives include an ECC check, is because otherwise they return bad data all the time. I think if you look at the fact that HFS
0: in one form or another has literally been around in production since early Mac OS, mm-hmm. uh, we're talking like pre Steve Jobs getting fired Mac OS, where they didn't even call it Mac OS. If APFS has the potential of being around even close to that long, Look just think of the storage changes and transitions that the entire industry will go through in that amount of time. Look where we have come since HFS since I I used to have a 20 megabyte external hard drive that was loud as hell that I hooked up to the back of my Mac Plus black and white screen with like a tiny monitor and that I formatted with HFS. My 800 kilobyte floppy disks. I formatted in HFS. We have literally gone from running my entire system from a floppy disk to now on these massive terabyte storage arrays mm-hmm. that are PCIe storage. There's that evolution of storage is so dramatic. The APFS would. There's just it seems like you can't depend on particular hardware functions because in the end you really have no idea. A decade down the road, what it's going to be running on, and you can update it, but then you're constantly having to rev your file system.
1: Yes, we've seen this like with every other file system, right? It's like, oh, we designed the file system, and we thought that two gigabytes was the biggest size anyone would ever make one file, right? Uh, and that was part of the design of ZFS was let's make the number so huge that we won't run into them. Because we want ZFS to last longer than every other file system has so yeah. far. I, I, um, I guess you could. I guess I if you're Apple, C-Stack. you
0: could always say I'm gonna buy. I'm gonna have this type of storage. But yeah, it's it seems like sure interesting. But the, the big choice. problem is
1: it's like. So they knew okay. that they ended up being stuck on HFS for thirty something years. Yeah, I think they would have designed the next thing to be able to last at least half that long. Uh, so I pulled up random stats from a two terabyte hard drive in one of my servers. <laughs> I Love it. How, how many ECC errors do you think it is corrected?
0: Oh, boy. I had, I'm not sure. Uh, give me a range. that I. How big should I guess of a number? Uh. Uh, very big. Really? Is it, is it in <laughs> yeah. the millions? Yes. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, is it over 5 million? You are by like an order
1: of magnitude, stuff.
0: <laughs> I have no idea because I know how long 4 this 4 billion. What?
1: So, yes, hard drives have ECC, and they use this to correct errors. But they do that because the storage is unreliable. Like, reading the data from the disk, half the time it's wrong, basically. Wow. Um, and they, so so that ECC is already being used, and it only provides so much protection. And we're already <laughs> like, running up into that, right? <laughs> uh, wow. So, like, this hard drive, ZFS has never got bad data from the hard drive.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, that hard drive. Mm-hmm. ZFS has, has always got good data, and it's checksum's approved it. But the fact that that hard drive is corrected 4 billion errors Mm -hmm. tells me that that ECC was really required. Jeez, it tells me I got to check all my backups. Got to check my backups. (laughs) I have got ZFS checksum errors from drives before Mm -hmm. because eventually that ECC can't correct enough of the data. And so relying on only that seems really sketchy. Like and and as much as you can say that oh Apple buys the most expensive SSDs that have really good ECC or whatever, it's like that's true, but it doesn't mean there's not bugs. Yeah, it doesn't mean that the hard drive doesn't wear out. It doesn't mean that they don't act bad when they get too hot. doesn't
0: mean storage doesn't get recalled. It doesn't mean that there's firmware errors yeah. like you're talking about. It doesn't and mean just that
1: because you paid this manufacturer a lot of money to build your SSD for you, it doesn't mean they didn't go out and buy the cheapest NAND flash they could. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And plus, and sometimes, sometimes the drive isn't the best judge of what's
0: corrupt or what's good or what's not exactly. good. I mean, sometimes sometimes as far as the drive can tell, it's serving you good data.
1: Yep. Wow, that's complicated. Although the drive usually doesn't check. <clears throat> wow, this is complicated. Not beyond that little bit of ECC. Uh, yeah, so Apple relies on the hardware to do the right thing, which is likely to backfire eventually. Uh, the Apple folks were quite interested in my experience with regards to bit rot. This is Adam's mm. experience, not mine. So that's aging data, uh, slightly losing integrity, and other device errors. I've seen many instances where devices raise no error, but ZFS correctly detected that there was corrupt data. Apple has some of the most stringent device qualification tests uh, for its vendors, and I trust that they really do procure the best components. Although Apple engineers I spoke with uh, claimed that BitWrite is not a problem for users of their devices. But if your software doesn't detect the errors, then you have no idea how many of your devices really, uh, how they perform in the field, right? If you don't have ZFS sitting there checking the checksum and keeping track of how many times it was wrong, how do you know if it was wrong? You know, if there's a single bit flip in a JPEG Depending where it is, you know, in in a really bad spot, it'll cascade and screw up the whole image. In another spot, it'll be one pixel slightly off color, and you're not going to notice. Yeah. Hmm. Um, So unless you're actually checking it with checksums, how do you know if you've had this problem in the field? But it's like Apple's like, well, nobody complained to us that they saw bit rot. It's like, well, most of your users wouldn't know it if they saw it and wouldn't think to report it. The only thing I could think of
0: is they do nightly images of iOS devices to the iCloud. Maybe they check some – the image, like with the two different images and see if the files I, – I can't imagine. Now that, the, the, no way. The, the amount of horsepower required to do something like that for the millions of iOS devices, just – I don't know. I can't, I can't imagine how they, could have, how they can
1: make that claim. Uh, so Adam goes on ZFS has found data corruption in multi-million dollar storage arrays I would be surprised if it didn't find errors from TLC or which is the cheapest form of NAND flash like the chips used in some Apple devices uh, he also says recall the fairly recent bruha of, regarding storage problems with a high capacity iPhone 6s it's like oh you mean you have storage that never has problems eh really hmm. uh, you know at least some of Apple's devices have been imperfect before so assuming that all the future ones won't be, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, Scrub. APFS will not have Scrub. As data ages, you might occasionally want to check for bit rot. Likely, uh, FSCK APFS can accomplish this, although it's going to only look at the metadata, right? Okay. As noted, yeah. there's no data redundancy and no checksums for the user data. So even if they had a feature like Scrub, it might find problems, but it won't be able to fix them. So it'll know that the metadata is wrong, but it won't be able to do anything about it because it doesn't have a second copy. Yeah. Uh, If it makes it any easier for Apple to reverse course, let's say it's for an El Cheapo drive I bought at Fry's, not for the gold-plated devices I got from Apple. (laughs) So, conclusions.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: Any file system started in 2014 should, of course, consider huge devices and SSDs. Check and check. So, it was started. Okay. So, we do know it was started. Okay. Yeah. Uh, copy on write snapshots are the norm, making the duplicate command in the finder faster wasn't much of a detour, although, not clear what the use case for that is really going to be. Uh, um, uh, the use case is unclear. It's a classic garbage can uh, theory solution, a solution in search of a problem. But it doesn't hurt, and it makes for a fun demo. The beach ball of doom earned its nickname, and HFS uh, naturally was built to avoid that. <laughs> Uh, There are some uh, seemingly absent or ancillary design goals Like performance, openness, and data integrity Squeezing the most IOPS or throughput out of a DICE Probably isn't critical for watchOS uh, And is relevant only to a small uh, percentage of macOS users Uh, It will be interesting to see how APS performs once it ships Uh, Measures any earlier would uh, misinform the public and insult the APFS team Yeah, that makes sense Yeah, so the APS development docs have a bullet point that says open source implementation is not available at this time. I don't expect APFS to be open source anytime soon uh, or anything, uh, but he'd love it if Apple would prove him wrong. If uh, APFS becomes world class, I'd love to see it on Linux and FreeBSD. Uh, Maybe Microsoft would even jettison their REFS experiment. Uh, My experience with OpenZFS has shown that open source accelerates the path to excellence. It's a shame that APFS lacks checksums for user data and doesn't provide any form of data redundancy. Data integrity should be job one for a file system, and I believe that's true for a watch or a phone as much as it is for a server. Uh, APFS... Oh, I already read that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So... uh... So it's interesting that they know, yeah, and you, say, you, you commented there, they noted that the open source implementation isn't available yet. You know, I remember when I was reading the Apple developer docs, it does say they intend to open source it in 2017 in the Apple developer documentation. I'm
1: uh, not I, sure why they would do it sooner and get yeah. the feedback sooner, especially if they want to get it done by... I, they definitely come from, the in a lot of cases, the lob it over the
0: fence camp. I think they do that with WebKit as well. And uh, in fact, I think that's kind of what caused a, a big sort of schism between uh, uh, KHTML and WebKit. Is they were just doing a lot of lobbying over the fence stuff. Yeah, and the, I think that's I think that's probably how they've really kind of did Swift. They kind of just launched it. They kind of just, boom, here it is. Here's a big. Here's the one dot oh. They did a drop. So maybe they'll do that with APFS. Is here's the one dot Boom. Now let's all work yes. on well,
1: it. Well, um, you know. Even ZFS, when it first was open source and it was still owned by Oracle, it's like, maybe they'll take your patches, maybe they won't. And they'll keep going forward with their thing. And Whereas when it became open ZFS, that changed everything.
0: And you could see how users might step up and add checksum support to the user file system.
1: If, if that happened... Well, I think happened, that's part of the reason. If, uh, if they release the source code now, people would fork it and finish making it proper.
0: Yeah, that's true. <laughs>
1: but... Uh, I don't have the link handy, but uh, the OpenZFS on macOS uh, people released a guide on actually doing root on ZFS on Mac. Oh, really? Uh,
0: nice.
1: Root, uh, huh? Boy, I wonder yeah. how that would go. Uh, uh, it's not perfect yet, but, um, you know, this hopefully, maybe, maybe by the time APFS comes out, ZFS will be a lot more smooth on Apple and you could just not use APFS. This seems like a uh, if, it does, if it does come
0: out, and it's open source. It feels like it would probably be at least a pretty solid contribution to uh, the file system ecosystem. And yep. it would likely be licensed under something like the a, Apple license. Yeah, which is, like the, something like they use for Swift, I would think, something like that. Uh, so interesting and uh, great detail. And the blog has even more stuff. And yeah, Alan has so it all uh, broken out. Yeah, closing to the notes, notes
1: here. Um Uh, For stability, APFS will be an improvement for Apple users of all kinds on every device. Uh, There are some clear wins and some missed opportunities. Now that APFS has been shared with the world, the development team is probably listening. While Apple is clearly years past the decision to build from scratch rather than adopting existing modern technology like ZFS, hmm. there's time to raise the priority of data integrity and openness. Uh, I'm impressed by Apple's goal of using APFS by default within 18 months. Regardless of how it goes, it'll be exciting. Uh, it'll be an exciting transition. And, uh, and say, I'm one. not sure anyone has ever wanted an exciting file system.
0: <laughs> uh, you know, not even me, not even me. Although I did run Riser FS for a little while, and that was pretty exciting.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was. Uh, that, that got the axe uh, in FreeBSD a couple of weeks ago. You know, uh, it's funny.
0: I made a joke about SUSE using ButterFS by default. SUSE also used Riser FS by default. They're, they have a history of uh, betting on a sort of more esoteric file. Uh, I just, yeah, you're right. Okay. Uh, so, anyways, any other thoughts on that, Alan? That's that, that was a great yep. breakdown. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, thoughts or no, that's it. Um I I I've talked to it. Good. Good. Well, then you know what? I'll take a moment and I'll thank Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. TechSnap.ting.com is where you go to support the show and save a little bit of money. Ting is my mobile service provider for a good reason. You just pay for what you use. It's $6 for the line and then your usage on top of that and Uncle Sam's take and that's it. So, for me, I have 3 devices, two of which are on Wi-Fi with the exception of when we're driving, which for me is uh, about two hours a day, but <clears throat> with the ex- but I usually then just listen to podcasts. Uh, my my line is usually around twenty four to thirty dollars. Our entire plan, which includes a- another two lines, never tends to go above thirty seven to forty five dollars. That's my range for three smartphones, two Android devices, and an iPhone. <laughs> I, I just, I can't tell you where else you could get that kind of service. And, and that's with, honestly, not really being like super, super, super anal about how I use it. Mm-hmm. From time to time, I, I try to be a little clever. Like, uh, I definitely uh, will uh, use Telegram instead of text messaging. That just seems like an obvious one. And I will download my podcasts on Wi-Fi. That seems like an obvious one. But for the most part, one of the things I love about Ting is they don't really have a preference on how you use the service itself. And what I mean by that is if you want to use Ting as just as a pipe to the Internet, you absolutely can do that. If you want to use Ting just to make emergency calls, you can do that. At $6 a month, you can start with like a SIM card and put it in, in, like in the case of Noah and Chase, your security system, where it only really sends you a message when the phone line's been cut or the window's been broken. And otherwise, it just sits there and behaves itself. And why would you pay more than you have to for something like that? And one of the nice things about Ting is they have two networks to choose from. They have CDMA and GSM, so you're just... If you even know that there's a difference in the two things, then you're savvy enough to look at coverage maps and figure out what's better in your area and deploy that. You could, with like the Nexus devices, you can switch between them as well. Crazy, crazy Noah, I think he has both active right now. In his <laughs> Yeah, he just bought two SIMs because they're like nine bucks and he put mm-hmm. one on CDMA and one on GSM. I tell you that, Noah. One of the other great things about Ting is. They're great customer service, and they're awesome tools to manage your account. Go check them out. Also, when you go to techsnap.ting.com, even if you're not going to switch today, you can learn a little bit more about Ting by visiting their blog. Look at this post, 130 over-the-air TV stations coming to Cord Cutters. Well, this will be something I'm reading. This is definitely something I'm going to read, so I'll be checking that out. That's over on the Ting blog. You can read about it, too. You can grab a device. Uh, you can bring it over to the Ting network and get credit or get one with our discount by going to techsnap.ting.com. Really nice devices unlocked. You own them, like the LG Tribute 5. 96 bucks. Unlocked. No contract. Pay for what you use. LGK7, $118. Samsung Grand Prime, $122. They have the Netgear Zing back in stock. It's got the uh, LCD touchscreen on it for managing like the MiFi. Super nice. They got the Motorola phones, the Nexus size, the internet phones from Apple, the One Touches. Go check them out. TechSnap.Ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. TechSnap.Ting.com. Okay, Alan. So it looks like our next story is about everyone's favorite company. I love them. You love them. They love the DMCA. Why, yes. Wait, no, not the RIA. Who's the RAA? I don't have any idea. They're. Completely off the wall here. <laughs> I, I looked down. I saw R A A ransomware. Yes. And you know what? I flashed back to is. Do you remember back in the day? Maybe you probably never did this. I should not presume that Alan Jude would ever use a service like LimeWire or Napster. I just would not presume no, that. I used better ones. Okay, good. So <laughs> I on the IRC
1: back then. So,
0: so the, good for you because on LimeWire and Napster, do you remember back then they would ha, they would they would upload garbage like to 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 users to get them to intentionally infect their machine or download I'm not saying this ever happened to me but like download an MP3 of Madonna where she just yelled at you for downloading
1: MP3s Did you ever I, The funniest ones I saw were always like uh, a thing pretending to be the latest movie Yeah okay. was really like a two megabyte EXE file Yeah I'm like. Sure, a bunch of dumb people are going to fall for that. Yeah, anybody that knows anything about computers is going to know that a movie can't be two megabytes. Yeah. So
0: now what they do is they just put a garbage file in there that's about two gigabytes with a HTML file that says "open this" link to the password, and then of course they get oh, you.
1: Well, there's that. Uh, the other one they do uh, the MPAA did was upload videos for uh, it would mm-hmm. start the song or mm-hmm. sorry it the song so it'd be the right size. Yep. And it'd be like the first ten seconds of the song yep. and then just static. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying
0: I know, but I thought yeah. that's what you were going with this, and I looked over. No, no. This is no. See, I was looking at my tab title, where I saw, yes. R- and I was like, oh, this is going to yep. be good. But so instead, Alan, I wait for your
1: surprise. Yes. Okay. So there's a new kind of ransomware that's coming out, and it's written entirely in JavaScript. Love it. Like Love that. it. It's called RAA. <laughs> uh, so it's a new crypto ransomware that's made uh, an appearance on the internet and it's slightly unusual in that instead of being written in C or something and being an .exe file, it's actually emailed to you as a .js file. And I was like, why would that? That's not going to do anything. How is that going to work? Then I remembered Windows is dumb. <laughs> uh, so the malware arrives as an attachment that's pretended to be a .doc file. So sure. you open it, but it's actually .js. Uh, for whatever reason, the default file association for .js files on Windows is the Windows scripting host. Sure. So that means if you double-click a JS file, it will actually run it. (laughs) I forgot that. That's good. On my computer, they're associated with my text editor, so I can edit. Right, of course. Um, But yes, the default is the Windows scripting host. So this means that people will get this email attachment. They'll try to open the doc, and instead, they will uh, run this JavaScript. The JavaScript uh, standard library doesn't include any encryption mechanism, so it could not make good crypto malware. But then it's like, oh, right. There's this framework called CryptoJS that provides all the crypto uh, primitives written in pure JavaScript. So they include that in the file they email you. And now it has AES-256 and can encrypt your files securely. So the ransomware demands about $250 worth of bitcoins in exchange for the key to decrypt your files. Uh, they actually offer you the ability to decrypt like uh, up to three of your files to prove they actually have the key. Interesting. Um, before you pay them. So pick three really good files or they just pick the files, do you know? I'm not entirely sure. Huh. Uh, I think there's some limits on what you can do and whatever, in <laughs> size and so on. Oh, but they'll let you decrypt a couple of files to prove that they're not just going to take your money. Uh, the ransomware also comes bundled with an embedded password-stealing malware. So they've actually encoded as a string a, an actual malware EXE file into the JavaScript. So when the JavaScript runs, it decodes that, writes it out to a file, and runs it. Um... <laughs> That malware uh, is a password stealer. Mm. So even if you do pay the ransom, the bad guys have also stolen all the safe passwords on your computer. <laughs>
0: oh, jeez.
1: So when you run the ransomware, it actually has the code to generate a fake .doc file and open it. The doc file is actually just mostly full of gibberish, uh, but that makes the user think it was a corrupt doc file or whatever. They weren't expecting this email anyway, so they're like, oh, mm-hmm. I didn't get to spy on this email that accidentally got sent to me. It's just full of gibberish. No the big screenshot deal. screenshot of one of the fake doc files in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it says, while the victim thinks the attachment is corrupted, in the background, the RAA ransomware will start to scan all available drives and determine if the user has uh, read and write access to them. If the drives can be written to, it will scan the drive for targeted file types, there's a list (laughs) in the doc, uh, and use the code in the CryptoJS library to encrypt them with AES and rename them from like whatever.jpg to whatever.jpg.locked. So it renames all the files to .locked and uh, encrypts them. (laughs) It also seems to purposely disable the Windows volume shadow copy service so that you won't have shadow copies to go back to. Nice. And it's not clear from the code because it's all obfuscated, but it might actually try to delete all of your existing volume shadow copies.
0: Oh, that's cold.
1: Yes, especially since one of the ways to protect yourself from CryptoLocker is to actually you know, have your file shares be backed by ZFS. And you can expose ZFS snapshots via volume shadow copy so that there's a nice GUI interface for users to be able to roll back their files. Um, although it's up to you whether you decide to allow the regular users to delete your ZFS snapshots. But it does mean that it's possible that the ransomware could even try to delete your ZFS snapshots. Mm. Although then it's your fault for allowing that to be a thing. <laughs> uh, That's on you. Also, to expose ZFS snapshots as volume shadow copy, they have to be named in the very specific Windows way. So make sure you also have other snapshots that aren't exposed that way, and then the user can't do that. Anyway, uh, the final thing the ransomware does is create a note on the desktop called exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, read me, bang, mm. bang, bang, bang. That sounds good. The ID.RTF. Sure, got to read that. Uh, and, and that ID is unique to the victim. And that file, when you open it up, is Russian, uh, but there's a translation on the website there where basically it's telling you that, hey, we've encrypted all the files on your system. Email us here, and we'll send you your key and pay us this way. And I think they even have a way to buy Bitcoin with credit cards, which doesn't seem to make any sense. I love
0: it. I love it. Now,
1: uh, so hold on. So they give you the option
0: to buy Bitcoin with your credit card? They, yep. so, so then they're doing a credit card transaction. They're doing credit card processing.
1: Well, they're pointing to some other site. Okay, it's phone. not them. That's but it seems like it's a great way to steal people's credit cards. Yeah, it does. Uses the use credit card to pay you for the ransom. Yeah, it does. Because normally you wouldn't want to. Normally, people don't sell bitcoins with credit cards because credit card transactions can be reversed, and bitcoin yeah. ones cannot. I thought only Coinbase could do that. I thought that was just a brand new thing Coinbase just introduced. I didn't think anybody could do it yet. Well, well what do I, I don't know. know that anybody can. Like generally. So then, how is this happening? Well, uh, if if it's just to steal credit cards, then it makes sense that they don't care about it being reversed. But, but if they want their Bitcoin, it must work. Yeah. Well, if it's all just a front to get you to give them sure. your credit card. Yeah, no,
0: I understand. So, so yeah. that
1: they can get more than $250. then maybe I, Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Because uh, yeah. <laughs> so When a JavaScript file such as RAA is executed outside of the browser, it requires an interpreter that can read the file and execute the JavaScript commands within it. Mm-hmm. Uh. As most people do not need to execute JavaScript files outside of their web browser, it is suggested that everyone disable the Windows scripting host uh, so that these types of files are not allowed to execute. This will also stop .vbs files and some other stuff. If you wish to disable the Windows script host, uh, which is enabled by default for who knows why, you can add the following uh, registry entry on your computer and set it to zero. So under HK Local Machine Software Microsoft Windows Scripting Host Settings Enabled, which won't exist, you'll have to create it, and you set enabled to zero, then you will get this nice dialog box saying the Windows scripting host is disabled, talk to your administrator instead of getting a virus.
0: Seems like a pretty good idea.
1: Yeah. So and that you is actually... execute JavaScript or JScript or VPS script. Yeah. It's probably a good idea to, to, to disable this. That path is in the um, show notes. What you could do is you could push this out as a group policy <laughs> <That's> domain <laughs> controllers and just hope Hell. that it works. Yeah, sure. What could go wrong? <laughs> It'll work on everybody's machine. It'll work everything. It'll always work except for this week.
0: <laughs> wow. That's the perfect timing on that one. Well, there you go. So that is is a really interesting – it's not R-I-A-A malware. It is R-A-A malware, and that's pretty neat. I
1: like that it comes in as a – It's funny that that, the researchers didn't pick that name. The the ransom document says you have the R-A-A ransomware.
0: Hmm. Yeah, there you go. That Bitcoin. That Bitcoin. All right.
1: As an attacker, that's the way to make sure that – you know the researchers call it by a name you like instead of calling it. You know, you've seen some of the weird ones. Like, I, I'd, like, I'd like, like to see them uh, jazz up the, uh,
0: the the ransom note though. Putting it as a, as a doc file on the desktop with read me exclamation. That's 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 missable. If yeah, you put I, that I on like my the, desktop, fake, I'd never see it.
1: I like I like the fake uh, check disk one that comes up early in the BIOS. Yeah, or like or, like, uh, or before the OS starts. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's like all red and that. I want the old. Remember the old like DOS like demos. Do yeah, demos. And it would be like we're gonna use assembly and pack this like really yes. complicated graphical demo into like a eight kilobyte file.
0: That would be amazing. That's what I want. That's the next yeah. generation. Jazz it up a little more, okay, guys. Yeah,
1: I want your. I own your machine. In the background, mm-hmm. there's like a space scene happening. Yeah, maybe with like graphics.
0: like like files getting like a, like a sci-fi files encrypting animation in in ASCII. Yes, like the
1: just, Yeah,
0: that'd be good. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, so uh, you know what? Why don't we talk about serious storage? Let's talk about IX Systems. IXSystems.com/slash/techsnap. Go there. If you land on that page, you support the show. They then they know we sent you. But also, you can find their white paper, which is put together by a group of folks that want to help you sort of inform the people along the chain to maybe switch over to provider a little better, like IX Systems. This is. A great company that we've worked with for a long time, both individually in our own companies, but also professionally now, on location, at live events, uh,
1: now, uh, now as sponsors they for the at, show for a long time, too. BSD Can, they donated a FreeNez Mini XL. So they had it at, at their table uh, so that people could come by and see it. And they had it all set up with hard drives and everything. And you could see it. And people were very impressed with it. Yeah. Uh, What they didn't expect is that Ajax is like, well, we don't want to lug this back with us, so we're donating it and and you can bid it in the auction. That's awesome.
0: You know, I think people probably maybe that are sort of new to our show, have probably heard of FreeNAS. We talk about it a lot on this show. And IX is the company behind FreeNAS. They also are a company behind the product called TrueNAS, which yes. is uh, great for really, really large systems. So they they span that whole range of systems. But it's not just storage that IX is great at. IX is great at just building systems for compute, It'd be that something that goes like in a 1U rack to something that is a rack full of compute, and they are yeah. a specialist
1: in the hardware, in the software, in the yeah. community, so and in the customer service. Pull up, pull up their blog, and yeah. the second article there is about the new Truenas, uh, a they just built for somebody.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I saw that. Is this the Is this the one here? Yeah, the uh, server MV1 upgrades with Truenas. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yes. So this is uh, this came out I think after last week's show. Mm-hmm. So we didn't mm-hmm. talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, So this is a new Truenas they built for someone. So that black box in the middle is the okay. Truenas itself. That's the head machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which looks like machine, it's what, three or four U's tall? Yeah, uh, that's three U's. Yeah, okay. It has 512 gigs of ECC RAM <sighs> and four eight core plus hyper threading Intel ZN CPUs. Right? And surrounding it on the little shelf there are uh, expansion shelves. Yeah. Each of those expansion shelves is uh, equipped with 22 eight terabyte hard drives,
0: <laughs> meaning that this installation,
1: uh, in the end, provides 1.2 petabytes of storage. <gasps> oh. Now, each of those expansion bays can actually support 24 drives. You can just see the last two are just empty. Now, did they so say how they connected the, it? Uh, it's SAS. Um, uh-huh. Wow, look at and, that,
0: Alan. Look at that yeah. in the rack. Holy yeah. smokes. So, so they, they
1: actually, uh, the company that wanted this had IX actually like, deliver this and install it in the rack for them. Because you don't want to the, lift these disk shelves. They're heavy. No kidding. Um, Why? So this, like, the 24-bay expansion shelves uh, support up 192 terabytes each. But when the client wants to upgrade in the future, they're not going to have to forklift onto a different system. They can switch to the 60-bay expansion shelves mm. and just pull the hard drives out of two or three, You know, pull yeah. the hard drives out of a bunch of these shelves, yep. Stick them in the new 60-bay shelf, slide that in, and now they, you know, you've just replaced two and a half shelves with one. Stick a second shelf in and, you know, if you keep doing that, then you can get up to four petabytes in one rack. Damn. That's they just about make... what I need right there. Yep. It's just about what I need. The uh, the Z35 they have here um, can support uh, high availability. So you have two of those head units and they're all wired to all of the disks and they can hot <laughs> failover between each other. <laughs> So that you can, you know, do your software updates and reboot it and all that stuff, or if one fails or whatever happens. This is mind-bending amounts of storage, the chat room says, and I totally agree. Yes. Huh. That's, uh, so that gives you an idea. Meanwhile, I've got... Uh, so they can custom build that or they can custom build the machine for, you know, under $1,000 that's just going to yeah. go in your basement. Yeah. Whatever you want to do. That's what we did
0: here at JB. And uh, it's working solid. I mean, it's you can tell even at that level the kind of that was what really surprised me when I got my free NAS. Is I, I I guess because I've built so many PCs over my life and I've built my own NASes. I sort of had a conception of what it was going to be, and when it arrived, at every single aspect of it, from packaging to build quality to the small touches inside, to the way they did the uh, USB flash storage, uh, to the to, to the way the cooling is, to the to the components themselves, every single aspect of it. Left me impressed, and I just was like, yeah, that that really is a nice touch. So check them out. Go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap, and a big thank you to ixsystems for sponsoring the TechSnap program, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Uh, And if you guys want, just to send me over one of those petabyte storages. I could put it to good use. It definitely put it to good use. You don't actually need a petabyte, honestly. No, (laughs) I don't.
1: I do not. Uh, But boy, wouldn't I like to pretend. The power bill for running... Oh, yeah,
0: matches. geez, and the cooling too. Uh, so, uh, but uh, many terabytes, yes, many many yes. terabytes, many yes. many many terabytes. Yes. Uh, so, uh, speaking of uh, things that take up uh, many many terabytes, well, maybe, maybe in total, Alan, with all the users, out, all the uh, audience out there, uh, episode one forty-seven, release all the things.
1: Yes, Uh, this is an interview we did with uh, Glenn Barber from the FreeBSD Release Engineering team and uh, also Peter Wem, who's on the FreeBSD ClusterMin team with Glenn, who does ClusterMin as well. And we got to interview them at uh, BSD game cool and chris is back in this episode too
0: right so he's yes. back and you guys do all the news and beastie bits and all that stuff
1: yes. uh, <laughs> full, full show yep
0: uh, very cool episode 147 of the tech program and uh you could go download that right now if you wanted to because shoot we're just about halfway through this show so you'd have that all download and you get more alan jude right in your face but in the meantime it's time for the tech feedback Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or even better. Well, yeah, never mind. Nobody ever submits a thread to our subreddit anymore. Let's get right to the emails. We asked you last week to uh, expand on your use. With port knocking, and several of you wrote in, and we got a couple here mm. to go over. David writes in. He says, "In show 271, you were asking whether anyone uses port knocking. I've been using it for a while on my Sync Thing server and a few other things I have hosted on. You guessed it, DigitalOcean, and I found it pretty useful. And he links us to the tutorial. So if you guys want to know, uh, it, you could just go search for port knocking on DigitalOcean's site, or look for his David's email in our show notes, and you'll see the link to DigitalOcean's tutorial." It explains how to set up knockd, and then you can use login using the knock command if you have knockd installed on the client, or you can just use nmap to do the knocking. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. So you either use the knock client or nmap. My main reason for using it is that my daily log watch reports are much quicker to read if they're not full of failed SSH logins, although I do think there's a security benefit as there are a hell of a lot of bots trying to log into SSH servers and port knocking if done properly, can stop pretty much all of them from even being able to attempt to log in. Uh, he says, That's, I guess that makes good sense. He does have a question for us, though. He says, I'm in the process of setting up a WordPress website for my dad's business. While there's no sensitive information on the site, I would obviously prefer to avoid random people from being able to change stuff on it, injecting malware, et cetera. I'm using the iTheme security plugin to do things like block any IPs, which get too many four or four errors, and also email me any configuration file changes, but I was wondering if there was any way I can restrict the admin panel to the local host interface. That way, I can log in via an SSH proxy and prevent anyone who does not have SSH access to the machine from logging in to the admin panel. Do you think it's possible? Thanks for all the great shows. Thanks particularly uh, to Chris for convincing me to switch to Linux. Sorry, Alan. It was your videos on switching to Arch
1: which did it for me two years ago, and I remain a happy Arch user. At fist bump there, David. Fist bump, uh, sir. Uh, yeah. So in your web server configuration, whether it's Apache or Nginx or whatever, you can add a rule that says you know you can only go to wp-admin. Uh, from this list of IP addresses. And that can be only local host or only your local host in your home computer or whatever. Uh, other things I've done is um, using, uh, if, if you have HTTPS, or like if you're already doing SSL on the site, you can set up um, HTTP basic authentication over HTTPS. So you have to enter a, an actual password to get to anything in that directory. So like you get the regular you know the browser prompt for a password thing, uh, before you can even get to the WordPress login page, and that can help. Huh. Uh, since most of the exploits <clears throat> come in that way, hmm. uh, biggest thing is just locking down the directory so that uh, plugins can't be added, and it, that none of the files can be modified by the web server. What you know, I guess too, if you're on digital,
0: uh, well, if you got a couple of DO droplets, this is what I would do since I already have a couple of DigitalOcean droplets, and I know he said he has one. And if you're putting your dad's WordPress on another one. It's not, this is not a direct security solution, but you could just restrict WordPress admin interface to the DigitalOcean private network, which you could then connect to from another droplet, so you could SSH into that front droplet, and then just do that and say, just restrict WordPress access, admin access to the private network. It's not perfect, because you're still allowing access from the private network, but uh, it could just be a really dead simple way to always island hop from your DigitalOcean droplet to the WordPress admin interface. Yep, uh, I've
1: also done it where you just had to have a special host name. So oh, you know, yeah. site.com slash wp admin didn't work, but you had to go through a different one. Yeah. Uh, part of that was just the main site is all set up to be cached. So the admin interface just required you to log into a different URL to get into the admin interface, and mm-hmm. we blocked any attempts via the cache system, uh, partly just so that all the bots and attacks and stuff would be blocked at the edge servers, not actually come all the way back to our origin servers to run the PHP code to block them. You uh, know, and a bunch of things like that. I guess
0: I have a follow up question. So we got we got great answers on port and I guess my question for this week's episode is. Does anyone have a working implementation of two-factor authentication for WordPress logins that uh, is, like, sort of standardized, like maybe
1: uses Google Authenticator or something like that? It should be easy to have one with Google Authenticator, although it doesn't necessarily help some of the security problems with WordPress, which often allow you to do something without needing to eventually be able to log in. Yeah,
0: I I have a family member who, uh, for their uh, business—actually, several of my family members for their business have WordPress, but one of them— uh, he had his WordPress site. One of the usernames compromised. Yep.
1: Uh,
0: and that's sort of you know that's sort of a drag. So if you could have two yep. factor, that would really, that would have helped in that scenario.
1: Yep. Uh, other things I've seen just obviously if you can make the entire WordPress read only, and then you know only turn that off when you're installing the WordPress update yourself or when you're you are deciding to install uh, a WordPress plugin. Yeah. And the rest of the time is read only. Uh, very easy to do is ZFS, right? You make a data set for the yeah. WordPress ZFS set read only equals on. And it's not touchable. When it's time to upgrade, set so if I set read only equals off. Hmm. As long as you're not uh, actually storing anything in the WordPress directory. Now, that obviously doesn't work if you want to say upload files. That would be d- or be frequently posting or something. Yeah, yeah, if you're well, if posting is fine, but if you're attaching images to the post, like at JB, you post. Oh, because uh, posting would be database picture. based. I see. Yeah the, yeah, the post that is fine, but you upload a picture, the snapshot that goes instance, to the file it. system. Yeah. Yeah. Now you can make it so only the directories, but the more stuff you unlock, the yeah. Page, but that, yeah. that wouldn't be such a, that wouldn't be
0: so bad. Yeah. All right. So Kells writes in with uh, follow-up on port knocking on pfSense, and this will wrap up our mm-hmm. port knocking stuff. You mentioned port knocking on technet recently. Port knocking is old school. The modern version of port knocking is single packet authorization (SPA). The benefits over port knocking include prevention of replay attacks, authenticated encryption, and port randomization. SPA packets are passi- are passively sniffed. By the FWKNOP process, fire. what do you think that is? Uh, Firewall kernel op process? I'm not sure. Uh, the best open source information I have seen of uh, FWKNOP is here. He links to it. The author wants to create a package for PFSense. So please encourage him. Here's the GitHub issue on it. And all well, this is linked in the show notes if you guys want to check it out. What's the point? There can be many reasons to use SPA, but a good one is minimizing zero day, one day, and brute force attacks. And why advertise to the world your services with your ports hanging just wide open? Mm -hmm. Okay, you know what? That's kind of an interesting argument, too.
1: Yes. Well, it depends what it's for. Like, for example, we provide SSH so our customers can log in and upload files so we can't hide it from them. Right. um, So the advantage, I imagine, to port knocking over SPA is that you don't necessarily need a special client to do the authentication you could you know, use the Netcat or Telnet or something just to hit those ports in the right order. Uh, but yes, SPA definitely helps. Like when they mention replay attacks. So with yeah. port knocking, uh, if you have to hit this port, then that port, then this port, and then you can SSH, if someone is listening to your connection, like doing man-in-the-middle type stuff, or the NSA is listening to the connection, they can see which ports you hit, and then they can do the same thing later. So yes, uh, port knocking only prevent, help protects you from like the random bots, not from... An actual attacker that's maybe analyzing traffic coming in and out of and into and out of your desktop or your server. Uh so there's definitely advantages of using like SPA. Uh but then you need the special client and it's like, well, is there a special client for my phone? Because I want to be able to SSH from my phone. <laughs> and so on and so on.
0: Hmm. So I could definitely see why there's a lot of use cases where it wouldn't work. Uh and I could but there see are some where
1: it would Yeah, and, and personal uh,
0: use cases, definitely, right? Yep. Okay, so we have an email here from Matt, and Matt writes in. He says he enjoys the show, been listening almost since the very beginning, and he's a big fan of TechSnap, Last Linux Unplugged, and Tech Talk today. And so for and my five year old daughter knows TechSnap and recognizes your voices when we listen in the car. Well, hello, Matt's daughter. My question is a simple one. I'm currently looking for a cost-effective solution to back up our home server. We have VMware, and he's a little guilty that it's not open source, but we have it running in the house, uh, and it's running File Server, It's running Plex and a few other VMs. I have a 4-terabyte mirror for redundancy, but I want to push the 1.5 terabytes of data we have somewhere in case the machine fails on me. I figure it would be easier to load it off-site somewhere, but I'm having trouble finding a low-cost solution. I tried to figure out a way to sync it with Amazon Cloud Drive with no success. I can push the data out, but I haven't figured out where to push it to or how to push only changes down the road. A little searching I found Backblaze and AltRive for about $5 a month for unlimited solutions from one PC. I don't know if these services would allow me to mount all my network locations on one server and push it all from there or not. Do you guys have any experience with any of these solutions, or should I just work on building another machine here in the house, and then just sync between them. Thanks, Matt
1: from Idaho. Well, yeah. Alan, what do you think? A couple of problems. Um, so, the first one is just if, if you're talking about uploading over the internet, if you have 1.5 terabytes of data and the average internet upload speed that people have is like three megabits, and that's, that's a fairly decent one. Like a lot of people don't have three megabits. I, the best I had uh, when I had cable was five. At three megabits a second, uh, which is like 300 and 75 kilobytes per second uh it would take you 50 days to upload 1.5 terabytes and that would be going 100 of your connection the whole time for 50 days he does say Uh, he has the means to get it out there though so maybe maybe has more and you know there are options like amazon if you're actually using like s3 or whatever uh they have a thing where pay them hundred dollars and ship them a hard drive and they'll load all the data on there and then maybe you can do incremental after that uh but s3 isn't a regular file system so it's, it's going to be harder to do incrementals on it and so on um but you know that's an option or something uh but yeah so, um, 1.5 terabytes of storage costs more than $5 a month, so I finding something where it's less is going to be difficult. I think he's on to something with Backblaze. I
0: really yeah. do. Uh, if he can get it there, they have uh, what they call, what you want to look for is they don't make an official Linux client, but they make Backblaze integrations, and they have a couple that work with Linux, like uh, O-Drive, uh, Cubix, B2Fuse Linux. I don't know which one's going to work best for you. Hash uh, Actually, I've heard really good things about HashBackup, so you might want to check out HashBackup, because that's a command line utility that works on Linux um, that interfaces with uh, uh, Backplace. But also, Duplicity uh, is also a well-known backup utility that... will do uh, the different, you know what, this will also sync the changes like you were talking about. Mm-hmm. So this uh, is exa- also like rsync.net, although I don't know how good that is. The nice thing about duplicity is it has built-in support for Backblaze. So it's, it's, it can connect to the Backblaze service and integrate with it. I think that might be his go-to solution. And then Backblaze wouldn't really be aware of what duplicity is doing. Because Duplicity is the one taking care of all the heavy lifting, so you just have to figure out how to, how to expose what you want backed up to the file system so that way Duplicity gets access to it. That would be my bet, because uh, we talk about BlackBit. They should be sponsors, really, to be honest, because we talk about their drive reports all the time, and people are constantly asking questions. And I think, too, you you know, it depends on the pricing. When you're talking about the amount of storage you are, you're going to have to go into solutions that we don't love. Uh, you know, because you notice we didn't really mention Tarsnet, but that would probably be our preferred off-site backup. Yeah, um, but with 1.5
1: terabytes is, yeah, that's a lot. And it actually costs money to
0: store that much. Yeah, so there you go. All right, so Matthias, or Matthias writes in, with uh, securing a network router behind an untrusted router. Ooh, he says, hey, guys, I got a lot uh, I got a lot of episodes to catch up on, so please ignore this. So he's not going to get the answer for a while. Uh, Is there any problem if I use a proper router behind an untrust- untrusted one? Most ISPs I can choose from hand out a cable modem with an integrated router. Yeah. Uh, I do have a couple of problems with the one I got, and I wanted to replace it, but it seems to be a good idea just to buy a decent router and plug it into the one that my ISP gives me. That would free me from any trouble when I move because I would just uh, put the non-ISP router behind the one I have. Of course, the ISP router could still do lots of weird stuff, and it's probably a security hole. But with my network behind the second router, I should be properly secured by PFSense and
1: OpenWRT. So the only downside is if it's not configured properly, you end up with double NAT. Yeah, Uh, And it means that when you want to port forward a port or something, you have to do it twice. And there's a couple of... Downsides, but in general, it works. Yeah. The thing I would try though is call your ISP and tell them you have yeah. your own router. Hey, can I give them um, a tip? No, just use you ever say, say, say
0: your okay. say your employer for work is asking you to use this, and that generally they they stop asking you a bunch of questions. Say or they give particular. me this model.
1: Don't, don't mention Linux or pfSense. Yeah. Say you have a Cisco router. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just yeah, and you need it's bridge like, mode turned expensive on. expensive Cisco router? Yep. Yeah. They can do what's called bridge mode, where the router will or the ISP router will just turn itself off basically and uh provide the connection directly basically it'll issue one dhcp lease to your router in the back and you may need like they may want your mac address potentially so have that information ready uh, but but yeah. uh, in bridge. general, that solves the problem. Yeah, uh, that's I got. I had the same problem. My ISP gave me this yeah. flaky router thing, and I'm like, no, no, no. And they're like, okay, yeah. uh, we'll reprovision it in bridge mode, and they send a couple of packets to the modem, and it rebooted. Yeah. And, so you know, uh, my PFsense had raw access to the internet.
0: Different problems. ISPs are definitely. You know less flexible on this, but it 's worth <clears> a shot if you use the right terminology, you sometimes will have yeah. i mean i went night and, I got nine day responses when I started saying you know i, I, I you know I own my own company and we, we link our two offices together with this specific model of firewall and I need bridge mode turned on they just they stop asking questions because that's you know that is my requirement to use their service and it's pretty, it's pretty common yeah. enough so they 've heard you want
1: to be careful with the business ones because then they're like oh you should buy a business loan. yeah oh that's true you do have to be careful but, about that that is a good point
0: you could just yes yeah, you
1: know, it's just like we have this expensive cisco and we want to use it you know say like
0: you're going to be working over the weekend or i don't know just come yeah, up with something so, because you're right they have pushed me on that in the past well now in, in general if you call
1: and it doesn't work hang up and call again <laughs> and call you get try, yeah, get a different. because sometimes that makes a difference yeah if, totally if, if you fail two or three times you give up and your isp is terrible yeah, or whatever yeah, but yeah you know Don't necessarily give up just because the one guy didn't know what you were talking about.
0: And maybe it's worth inquiring if they do have a business line that uh, removes this restriction because, you know what?
1: That's what we just eventually ended up doing. You know, they don't care so much. It's just they have to know that it's possible for them to actually send a different provisioning profile to the modem. But if they're aware that it's a thing, they're probably fine to do it Mm -hmm. If they don't know that it's something they can do then they will uh, try to talk you out of it or sell you something or something. Yeah. And that's why sometimes just calling back and getting a different person might yeah. help. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the so, other thing is, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of saying the right buzzwords to get them to bump you up to somebody who will know what you're talking
0: about. But if he can't get that done, if that doesn't work, there's still a few things you could do, like Alan mentioned earlier. So just keep it in mind. And, yeah, uh,
1: you, you can deal with double that. It's just you got to double port forward and it's... It can hurt performance. Something to keep in numbers mind a little bit, but yeah, sure. it's usually not too bad. And you know what? I've been to places where they're doing it,
0: and it's not especially at
1: all. Um, if the ISP router supports like DMZ mode or or pass through mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you can have it just forward all traffic to the one IP address of your new your your second router. Uh, that can improve things quite a bit.
0: Yeah. Okay, that's good
1: stuff. All right, so that brings us sort of the end of
0: our email list. We've been working through a a whole backlog for a while, so now we need your questions. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact, and then choose TechSnap from the drop-down or email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. If your question didn't make it on the air, it might need to be rephrased slightly, so try that and send it in. We're always happy to get them. But we want more questions. Now, next week is my last week before I go on my first vacation in, like, eight years or something, and I'm going to have Noah step in the following week. So we're going to need lots of questions next. Next week for my last show, and then lots of questions for Noah's episode. So please send lots in, and we'll divvy them up and get them all answered here on the show. That's text at jupiterbroadcasting dot com. Oh, and a note: I've been failing to mention it recently. Recently. Uh, in, the pe- in the previous few episodes, I have been releasing the entire episode, the live stream of the entire episode, to our patrons at patreon.com slash today. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be eventually expanding this because it seems like you guys like it. So actually, I talk to, I'm going to be talking to Alan about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me know. Give me your feedback specifically to the TechSnap audience, how you would like it served up to you. So if you are a patron or want to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash today. And then you'll see in the feed the TechSnap post. I'm trying to kind of get... I'm getting a lot of feedback from the Linux Action Show audience, and a lot of them are saying we want RSS feeds or we want downloads. Um, But I actually haven't really heard that from the TechSnap audience, and I I don't know if it's...
1: Maybe I, think you guys just, I don't think you've mentioned it on TechSnap yet.
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so I think that's my bad. So I come, uh, this is in the feedback collection stage right now, and I have sort of neglected asking you guys. So if you haven't checked it out yet or would like to, please do. And then leave a comment in the post with your thoughts. I'm, I am personally going through and checking those all the time to get your feedback. So when we roll out a system, it's something that everybody likes. And again, that's at patreon.com slash today. Okay, with the feedback segment all done, guess what? It's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup were stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to go through some of these links with you and give you more links to follow up and read on your own after the show. And some of these links were slipped in by ninjas in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com, where you guys do awesomely contribute subreddit uh, content all the time. I was just teasing you earlier. Uh, Like this first story, uh, it came from the subreddit. Defending our brand, the Let's Crypt post reads... And it looks like there's a bit of a uh, trademark dispute happening here, Alan, with yeah, Let's Encrypt. Yeah, so it seems
1: uh, Komodo, one of the other big yep. CAs, yep. I think they have about 33% of the market because they sell certificates for, like, $9. Um, apparently went and uh, trademarked Let's Encrypt uh, after Let's Encrypt was announced, but before oh, it was really a big thing. That's dirty. Uh, and the way U.S. trademark law works is, like, it's the first person to use it or something. I forget how it is, but, Yeah. Uh, you know, Let's Encrypt builds up quite a bit of a brand under that name. Changing their name now would probably hurt them quite a bit, Uh, including, I think, the fact that the certificates are issued as the name Let's Encrypt. (laughs) Um, The name is, yeah, Yeah, it's kind of in there. So, I don't know. Hopefully, the U.S. Trademark Office just throws out Komodo's application. But, you know, when have trademarks ever been the right thing? I like this title. What's worked in computer science? That's bold right there, Ellen. Yeah. So this is looking at a list of ideas. Uh, originally for a, a talk given a long time ago, then it was updated in 99. And now here's a version for 2015. So looking at things like virtual memory. Yes, that definitely worked. That was a good idea. Mm. Address spaces, that worked, that was a good idea. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a bunch of other things listed like that, you know, uh, packet networking, objects and subtypes, uh, relational databases and SQL, transactions, bitmaps, GUIs, the web, algorithms, etc. Things that maybe are going to work, maybe not, parallelism, right? Running multiple things at once. Computers are still not great at that. And, you know, most applications are still single-threaded, but maybe some can do multi-threaded. And we now run many programs at once, so that's kind of a parallelism, but it's not quite the same.
0: Interesting um, to have bitmap GUIs also on here. Yep. Uh, the web so here's
1: the changes between the uh, over the years. Yeah,
0: yeah. So not much has uh, RPC has gone from no to yes. Distributed yep. computing no to yes. Security no to maybe.
1: <laughs> yeah. You might actually get there. <laughs> risk uh, maybe to no. <laughs> uh, which is interesting because you know Risk Five is starting to come out. Uh, Arm, which is kind of risk, is there, but mm-hmm. Arm really isn't that risky anymore. Uh, Garbage collection went from maybe to yes. Uh, Reusing stuff, maybe to yes. Uh, Capabilities, still no. Although there's a lot of research going on in this area in FreeBSD, including uh, the cherry and berry things. And they're getting to the point now where you can actually run unmodified software and have capabilities protect it. Uh, But, you know, it's not shipping in anything mainstream yet. So, still not a work. Uh, Fancy type systems, no. Functional programming, no. Although, maybe... Uh, You know, software engineering, no, no, <laughs> uh, and so on.
0: Huh. This is really cool, actually. It's kind of a neat concept to go back and
1: uh, – But, yeah, in particular – How did we uh, do? Did this work? Every, every, yes from or for every yes from 1999 is still yes today. Seven of the maybes and no's were upgraded and only one was downgraded. And on top of that, there are lots of topics like neural networks that weren't even worth adding to the list – Back in 99, which had now gone from a no to an unambiguous yes. Hmm. Uh, some of the other interesting thing is that we keep seeing these uh, ideas from the 70s come back in computing. Like uh, compartmentalization or containers and virtualization. You know, uh, those things kind of of be- were tried. Yeah, even really sort of too slow. But then we got hardware virtualization. It was fine. Or containers, you yeah. Know? FreeBSD invented them in the late 90s and early 2000s and they didn't really go anywhere until people started making a big deal out of them. and Or, or people started using to solve the pro- the dependency problem that Linux has. Which is interesting because that was the original use case for jails on FreeBSD was, I need to have multiple different versions of PHP installed concurrently in the same web server. Right. Which, back with Apache and modPHP, wasn't possible. Right. Uh, and they've solved the problem by using containers to run multiple different Apache PHP stacks. Uh, and You know, this kind of what Docker was originally designed idea was I want to ship my application, but the problem is that everybody uses a different operating system and different packages and different repositories. And there's no way they can get all the compatible pieces to actually make my app work. So why don't I just bundle up what worked on my laptop when I built it and ship you that? Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is terrible, but the use case for Docker Uh, (laughs) and so on. But anyway, yeah, it's interesting to look at computer science and see what ideas haven't been made to work yet because a bunch of them are probably what's going to come next it's like you know we've seen over and over uh, the original ideas from things like plan 9 the operating system and old mainframes and unix and so on we keep coming back to those ideas uh and and they become the next big thing so what old ideas haven't become the next big thing yet and maybe they'll be the next next thing
0: CRT screens. No. Um, this, this seems to be the next big thing, to be honest with you. And I'm glad to see somebody getting smacked down a little bit for it. I guess the company I, InMobile, or InMobi, which is an ad network, is going to pay $950,000 to the FTC for using people's Wi-Fi signals on their smartphone to track them around, you know, to generate and target ads at them, which this seems like this is just going to be a growing epidemic, really. Uh, the FTC alleged that Inmobi uh, collected ne- a nearby basic service identification addresses, which act as unique serial numbers for wireless access points. The company, which uh, the, the company which thousands of Android and iOS ad makers use to deliver ads to its end users, then fed each BSS ID into a geocoder database to infer the phone user's latitude and longitude, even when an, even when an end user hadn't provided provided permission for location to be tracked through their phone's yeah. dedicated location feature. So,
1: yeah, if you, if you don't let the app use the GPS, it will look at the uh, Wi-Fis that are near you and their Mac addresses and be like, well, I happen to know that particular Wi-Fi is at that Starbucks, and you must be near that Starbucks, and so you must be near there.
0: Yep, that's dirty play. Dirty, dirty play. So uh, we have a link from VeriSign in yes. the show notes. What does .com mean?
1: Yes, uh, so it's the history of .com, hmm. uh, and it's uh, basically Verisign runs the registry for .com and .net, and they talk a little bit about the history of how that came to be and how DNS works. Just an interesting little article. That's pretty much cool. over the history.
0: I like it. I like it. Uh, So I guess people are making a big deal about this, so I thought I'd toss it in here because this could have some long-term security ramifications, I'd imagine. In the past, I guess the iOS kernel and stuff around it was obfuscated either through encryption or some other method. And in the latest iOS release... Uh, Apple has not obscured the workings of the heart of the operating system. According to this article, uh, they no longer using encryption. Critical pieces of the code uh, uh, that uh, power millions of iPhones and iPads, they write, is now available. Security experts say the famously secretive company may have adopted a bold new strategy intended to encourage more people to report bugs. When Apple was asked for clarification, they sent the following statement. The kernel cache doesn't contain any user info, and by unencrypting it, we're able to optimize the operating system's performance without compromising security.
1: So there you go. So instead of hiding the kernel, they left it open because now they don't have to spend a bunch of time decrypting it, and maybe that'll help security researchers, although that definitely wasn't Apple's goal.
0: (laughs) All right, let's talk about GitHub. Tell me about this.
1: Yes, uh, so GitHub had to reset a bunch of passwords when they noticed they were getting... uh, a lot of brute force attacks and a bunch of them were succeeding Mm -hmm. Uh, this caused mostly by people uh, so the attackers were using a database of stolen usernames and passwords from other sites that had been compromised so it meant a bunch of people used the same username and password that they did at some other site on GitHub uh, and they had their accounts taken so GitHub detected this and reset the passwords for anybody where the attackers were going to succeed naturally Good for GitHub. You know, this is more
0: proactive measures that need to be taken. Hopefully, we'll just over time get users to start using different passwords.
1: Yes, and also they suggest using their two-factor auth system. Hmm.
0: You know, Google just recently updated their two-factor auth, so that way now it it sends a push notification to your phone when you're prompted to make that little process a little faster. Uh, I thought this was an interesting story, maybe a way of the future itself. Uh, Alicia Keys, everybody's favorite performer, is done playing nice. The article reads: When you show up to a concert now, they have baggies for your phone to go into. They have to go your baggie. Your phone has to go into these baggies now. I'm not sure if they're lined with tinfoil or what, but of course the idea is to make it a phone-free event. As phones are waiting, as fans are waiting in line, and they say they don't mean airplane mode either. They have a rubbery pouch, and your phone goes in there. They have a picture
1: of it right here. I don't understand what it does. Well, I think. Like, are, are they like checking your phone and giving it back to you at the end, or are they just making you put it in a thing? Yeah, you put it in a thing
0: uh, because they, they are sick and tired of the audience uh, with their phones out. It says, I don't really. I just thought that was an interesting trend itself.
1: Yeah, it's, it's just
0: strange. Yeah, it's the videotaping, it's posting things up on YouTube. I guess the artists don't like that. There you go. And today I learned that that's the thing happening at concerts. All right. So how about this one? The 100,000 lost Air Force files that
1: were found. Again, 100,000 files lost once, now found. So apparently there's this database with the uh, Air Force Inspector General's files in it, and (laughs) it got corrupted, and all their backups were no good. Oh! And the files were all going to be gone. It was like six years worth of work or whatever. But? Uh, Lockheed Martin managed by working around the clock for like a week that they will be able to recover the files they managed to unbreak the database or something. So Lockheed Martin and Oracle worked together. Yeah. So the Oracle database went sideways, yeah. and uh, they managed to get the data back. <laughs> okay. Uh, in particular, it's not clear why the backups weren't usable. Uh, But it's like, as my friend Dan likes to say, backups are worthless. It's restorers that are priceless. Amen to
0: that. You know, I got a whiff of this next story. MSI and Asus accused of sending reviewers overpowered graphics cards. You know, the new GTX 1080s that got all the attention. Yeah, so basically the
1: version of the video card they send out to reviewers is usually pre-overclocked. Yeah, gaming mode out of the
0: box or something. Yeah. Uh, So it's like a feature available to consumers but not turned on by default. And
1: it overclocks the the memory and the CPU. But usually in general you're assuming, all right, so I'm going to get the performance that the reviewer got and then I'm going to turn on gaming mode and getting more. It's like actually no. Yeah, it is a little sketch. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And it's, you know, uh, the number of companies doing it probably has something to do with one of them started it and then the other ones had to do it to keep up. It's like how come MSI is beating us in all these benchmarks? Oh, I see what they're doing. We'll have to do the same thing to keep up or whatever.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, next story in the roundup, uh, account takeover. Ladies and gentlemen,
1: we have a spotlight of an account takeover here. Am I uh, am I buckling up, Alan? Tell me about this story. Ah, so this is a story uh, from Akamai and Cisco. They're uh, looking at this attack. Uh, and basically attackers were trying to break into a bank using uh, a giant list of stolen credentials. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the number of unique IP addresses they used is what makes the big story here. Uh, so they did a brute force attack uh, to try to log in. They used 1.1 million different IP addresses to attempt 744 million logins using 220 million different email addresses uh, and their passwords. So they took like an entire database of usernames and passwords stolen from somewhere uh, and spread them out over over a million IP addresses and tried to log into these two financial institutions, which probably means banks or PayPal or something like that. Uh, So they tried basically 750 million login attempts against uh, those two banks Jeez. trying to break in with finding people using shared passwords. <laughs> and I imagine uh, when you try 744 million times, I imagine a couple of them work. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And
1: also spreading it out over, over a million IP addresses probably uh, defeats a lot of the defense mechanisms. Like they probably was like, all right, we ban an IP after we tried so many times, but in order to avoid taking up too much memory or, clogging up our router we only keep you know a thousand ip addresses on the blacklist and then we push the old ones off to put new ones on mm-hmm. well if you have a million ip addresses you can just keep cycling through that list and never actually get banned by using each ip uh just not frequently enough that other ips push it off the bottom of the list so when it does the second attempt it doesn't get counted as having been there before <coughs> a bunch of things like that
0: Excuse me as I uh, slurp down my water. Um, so I thought this next story was particularly interesting, Alan, if you're ready to jump. Yep. The uh, the story goes, I, I returned a set of Wi-Fi connected home security cameras, forgot to delete my account, and now I can watch the new owner. Some of these Netgear, I think they're Arlo's mm-hmm. security cameras. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I logged so in like my basically- account so you could see
1: them. Yeah, when you get these, you uh, basically go to the website for Netgear or whatever, and you register like the model, the serial number, and your account. Uh, and then they return them, and somebody else bought it and registered that with a different account. And uh, you know, basically, the assumption is that the serial number is is private and unique. But now there's two different accounts that can watch that camera. They
0: uh, they said that they uh, went ahead and contacted Netgear, and they talked to a senior support engineer. He says they're aware of the issue. But since the cameras aren't supposed to be resold, I suppose they didn't really think of this. I was assured they were working on a fix within the next three weeks to prevent cameras of multiple accounts to force. A hardware reset on the cameras if cameras were previously registered in the system. That seems like a, a, an interesting way to solve it. But, it's yeah, you know, we never thought about resale. I didn't think they would last yeah. that long. These things are cheap. Have you seen how cheap the oh, you never thought it would last that long. <laughs> uh, breaking band, reverse engineering, and exploiting the Shannon baseband. What's? I don't even know what the yes. Shannon
1: baseband is. <laughs> uh, it's one of the models. So a bunch of people that work for Qualcomm, which is the manufacturer of one of the oh. bigger baseband chips okay. in – Phones. Well, they didn't. Uh, the, the people that work for Qualcomm didn't attack the Qualcomm one. They attacked one of their competitors. Sure, of course. Uh, but yeah, it basically, t- their uh, HP's pone to own mobile phone to own conference, and basically, they're looking at attacking uh, the um, the one that's in the uh, Samsung S6.
0: Hmm. Yeah. They're, they. Yeah. Uh, they're t- the uh, sh- the Samsung S6 has its own custom built chip. So Qualcomm yeah, lost. Yeah. So is it it be- the
1: Qualcomm one. Yeah. Um, hmm. And so a bunch of people at work at Qualcomm were finding flaws in that one. That's funny.
0: Yeah, well, that only really helped Samsung in the long run. Uh, mm-hmm. And Qualcomm sort of fell on their ass for a year, so it's not surprising that people jump ship. Just saying, hashtag. Yeah. Uh, all right. I thought maybe we'd end the roundup on a positive note. The Senate has rejected the FBI's bid for warrantless access to internet browsing histories, uh, just by a super, super narrow margin, too, like two votes, I yeah. think. <laughs> it was really tight. Uh, but they couldn't get the, re- with the required majority to advance the bill. Yeah, two shots, two vo- two votes short of the required sixty votes to advance. It was a John McCain introduced amendment as an add-on to a commerce adjust uh, commerce bill. <laughs> for commerce, science, and science appropriations. Oh! <laughs> the, the sleaziness of it all, Alan. So it's good, though. It's good that it didn't pass. It, it missed it by two votes. So, hey, there you go. All right, Alan, I think that brings us to the end of the show, doesn't it? hmm Very good. Don't forget we want your emails, Snap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. You can find the show live at jblive.tv on Thursdays. And that's at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is...
1: Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC.
0: Yeah, and you can get it converted at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. And if you don't want video, you can go to jblive.fm and listen to it on the go. Don't forget the entire live stream is available. So when I hit stop right here, if you're watching the live feed, there's still more show. And you can find that at patreon.com slash today. And I just want to give a special shout out to the chat room who was uh, extra fun today. If you wanted to be part of that it's over at that jblive.tv page or irc.geekshed.net and it's poundjupiter broadcasting to get in the room. Okay, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap and we'll see you right back here next week.